When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my dear Unshaken Saints. I'm Jared Halverson, and I have missed you. Now, usually I get these videos out on Tuesday or Wednesday of each week, uh, about a week and a half before we're studying it in church on Sunday. Uh, and as you know, this was, it was later than usual. Uh, I hope I can finish this in time to, to squeak it in before Sunday when, when uh, you're discussing it in church. But it has been intense a couple of weeks. Uh, I've been stretching my snorkel to the to the breaking point uh, and the tip is just barely above the surface of the water and then the waves pick up uh, and so I'm, I'm getting some water down here uh, and feeling like I'm barely making it so uh, please forgive me for my tardiness on, on, on getting this out to you and uh, and please know that my my heart's been been with you and wanting to be able to share the the truths of the gospel yeah, but it's been it's been intense I had I was up against a really hard deadline on the final polishing of my dissertation that has taken forever, uh, and so as, it, as soon as I come home from institute, it's it's hit the hit the paper until oh, one or two, sometimes three in the morning, and then get up the next day and, and get right back at it. So uh, if I seem a little sleep deprived or my eyes are baggier than usual, uh, they I come by that honestly this time around. Uh, in the midst of all that, my son got his mission call to serve a service mission here in the area, and he's doing incredible things with refugees, with uh, addiction recovery groups. Uh, that's kind of where his heart is, just wanting to lift and help people. He gets that from his mom. And it's been amazing to watch the mantle of a missionary settle down upon his shoulders. It was not, uh, it came as a surprise uh, to him to be called to serve, uh, ser serv serving uh, rather than called to serve proselyting. Uh, but it was amazing to watch his heart slowly soften and wrap around that call. Uh, for years, he has been okay. He's already. Uh, metabolized, internalized the, the principle in section 80 of whether to the north or the south or the east or the west, it mattereth not, you cannot go amiss. And he really had embraced that idea of, I don't care where I serve as long as I get to. And, and the Lord uh, saw him and then raised him one. He said, oh, you've already learned that lesson, that's good. That's a hard one for a lot of missionaries to learn. Let me give you one that's gonna be hard for you. So that it's not just a where you serve, but how you serve and in what ways you serve. And uh, it's just been a beautiful thing. The more I've studied service missions, I think, wow, this is the best kept secret in the church. And if everybody knew about it, they, no one would proselyte anymore. <laughs> That's not true. But it's incredible the opportunity you have to really get into people's lives and, and make a difference. His first hour as a missionary. Uh, he was set apart on Sunday, and then Monday it began. And the first thing he did was uh, to zoom in to a, a mindfulness and meditation group that his grandmother runs, and, and he shared his mission farewell talk. And by the end, uh, a sweet non-member sister uh, asked for a copy of the Book of Mormon and wanted to know more. And so I, I was laughing with my son, saying, it's not often that a missionary gets to place a Book of Mormon the first hour of their service. Uh, most of them need to go to the MTC for a while before we can let them loose upon the world. Uh, but, but amazing to just watch that happen. But in the midst of all of that, uh, Set Apart Sunday 
by Sunday night, uh, I was in the emergency room with one of my other children, and she and I stayed there from Sunday night until Thursday morning. Uh, and so if you've never gotten to sleep in one of those little recliner chairs in an ER, uh, four days of it was enough, for, or four nights of it was enough for me. Uh, thankfully, she's out and doing much better, uh, but it's been a crazy, a crazy couple of weeks. Uh, was it last, was it last time? Usually I'm like two weeks ahead uh, on these lessons, film it and then do all the editing and post-production and all that kind of stuff and add the, the, the pictures and slides and scriptures. It's a long process, and, uh, but just to try to stay ahead so I can get it out to you. And, and there was just no time to do any of it. And, and I'm just, I, I, I hope that what we can talk about today will be a blessing. I think it was the last one that we talked about, the best of times, worst of times. Well, little did I know that that's exactly where I was headed. Uh, with some of the best of times, as far as my, my son's mission beginning, and the worst of times of spending so much time in the ER with my daughter, and these looming deadlines just with their crushing weight. I'm grateful to be back. Still not quite done with everything. We're not out of the woods. But to be able to come back and spend some time in the scriptures, they are, they are my source of strength. They are, I'll say I was sleep deprived, but I was never spirit deprived. And I'm grateful for that. I know some people feel spirit deprived and wonder sometimes, oh God, where art thou? As we'll see next week as we study the Liberty Jail revelations. The saints are on their way. Joseph's on his way to Liberty Jail in a way during these, the, the period that we're studying today. Section 115 to 120. A lot of short revelations, uh, but big things are happening in the church. As the saints have already been driven out of Jackson County, now they're now being driven from county to county, and by the end of where we are today, they will be driven out of the state. Uh, ironically, one of the last people to leave Missouri under the extermination order was Joseph Smith. And the reason it took him so long to leave is that he was... He was under lock and key. He's uh, suffering there in Liberty Jail. This is the time period you see the, the Hans Mill massacre. Uh, you see the burning of farms and homes and, and just hard, hard things that the saints are going through. The picture that I ended up using for the, the cover, the thumbnail uh, of, this, of this video and kind of the sidebar for all of the scripture uh, quotes that we'll put up is a story that uh, is kind of an unknown one in church history, but it takes place during this time period. Among those that were in Liberty Jail with Joseph Smith was a man by the name of Alexander McRae. Wonderful man. His wife was amazing. Her name was Eunice McRae. And she's the one that's, that's uh, shown in this, in this painting. It's a story where the Missouri mobbers had come through and were just driving people out. Uh, her husband was already on the way to Liberty by now uh, to be imprisoned. And... She's in this, the, the mob has come in, they are ransacking people's homes, trying to find anything of value that they can steal. Uh, but under the cover of, of a lie about, well, we're just searching the area for, we've heard that you Mormons are counterfeiters. And so we're, we're here to see if there's, if you have any counterfeit money or the plates that you're printing it or the dye that you're using to make it. And, and that was a farce, but the, the just trying to have an excuse to break into people's homes and take whatever they wanted. Well, Eunice McRae is there at home with her two young children, her husband's gone. And a few mobbers break in and start ransacking the place, which she calmly allows them to do. But then it gets to a point where they, she's like, fine, you search wherever you want. We don't have anything that you're talking about. And they've gone through every drawer and, and, and cabinet. And then they start tearing up the floorboards, pretending to say, oh, we're, we're just want to make sure it's a complete search. 
and they tear up floorboards and then start digging into the dirt and just throwing the dirt all around the floor of her cabin. Uh, I can imagine how frustrating this would be as a mother of young children. Your husband's gone, and what are you doing? Now, long before the mobbers were done, Eunice McRae was, and she pulled out a pistol and pointed at those men and said, gentlemen, you've had your fun. Now put all that dirt back in the hole you took it from and put the floor down as it was and clean the floor. The first man who attempts to leave before it's completed will get killed. Uh, Taka, this is a strong woman. And, and I think too often we hear about the men in Liberty Jail. We, we think of the, the apostles and what they're dealing with and going through, but their wives, their children, it's incredible the strength that was required of every saint. And Eunice McRae was one of those strong sisters. So as we look at the scriptures on the screen, keep, the, keep an eye out in your peripheral to this incredible woman and, and all those women and men like her that are, that are struggling and suffering through this time period of Missouri. As we've said before, the closer you get to the Garden of Eden, the more you start noticing the snakes. The closer you get to the New Jerusalem, the more new trials and tribulations start poking their head. What the saints are up against trying to establish Zion, when Babylon is always waiting in the wings. The, the, the challenges of the saints in this time, we're not going to get too much into the history here. Uh, we'll talk some more about it next week when we get into Liberty Jail itself. But what they're dealing with as these revelations come today, section 115 to 120, Oh, to hear any voice of, of comfort, of reassurance, of direction to the saints would have been a great blessing. Now, the focal point for today's revelations, geographically, is far west Missouri. Like I said, they've been booted from county to county to county, and, and the saints end up settling in far west. Uh, we talked last week with uh, the Kirtland Safety Society with the, and all the collapse of the church in Kirtland. Joseph Smith eventually is told, you, you got to go. And so Joseph leaves uh, Kirtland and resettles in Missouri. He's there in far west. And, and here is where these revelations come for today. Uh, the name alone is interesting. Maybe it's the Californian in me that's just, you know, westward ho or west is best. But to think of far west, yes, it's in the middle of the, of the United States, but this is the far west of the, what constituted the United States at the time. Uh, west of that, we're looking at Native American territory and so on. But to think of what happens, I, I was just wrapping my heart around this idea symbolically. What does it mean to go to the far west? There's a verse in Joseph Smith Matthew and in Matthew 24, where the Lord speaks of the second coming in terms of a westward movement. He describes it in this, in this way. For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. We think of this, this westward hoe. We think of manifest destiny. Well, what is the manifest destiny of the kingdom of God? To cover the earth as the, as the waters cover the sea, or in this case, as the light covers the earth, beginning in the east and beginning to shine even unto the west. The saints would continue to move westward. Uh, on to Salt Lake City. From there, to, I mean, they could get California with, with the, the Mormon Battalion or so on. Missionaries to, to the islands of the sea, Hawaii and Samoa and Tonga and, and on and on and on. To me, there's something richly symbolic about this idea of will you keep heading westward? Will you allow the light of the gospel 
and, and the light is going to have to displace some darkness and you will be up against that darkness as you go. But to have the saints settling in far west, despite all the, the persecution that they were facing there. I mean, Brigham Young once said that every time you try to kick Mormonism, you only kick it upstairs. And the saints were definitely being kicked around in far west. Uh, and, and definitely being forced in many ways to, to raise themselves, kicked upstairs to a higher level of living, of sacrifice, of strength, of courage. All of those things would be necessary as they continued their trek west uh, a few years later. But for now, what do we do now that we're resettling? Well, section 115 is, is the beginning of their answer. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and also my servant Sidney Rigdon, and also my servant Hiram Smith, and your counselors who are and shall be appointed hereafter. This is the first presidency, okay, Joseph and Sidney and Hiram. But also the mention of and your counselors? Wait a minute. I thought Sidney and Hiram were the counselors. They are. What's interesting, though, is even this, this opening of, might you need additional help? More counselors? Those who are, those who shall be appointed hereafter? President David O. McKay uh, called additional counselors in the first presidency during his administration. And the official first presidency was those, those three, but then it just... Okay, I, I just, there is so much work to be done. This is really the first global president of the church. And, and to, to call additional counselors to, to be of assistance. Or more cl closer to our time period when President Kimball had two counselors and all was well in the first presidency, but he just felt impressed to call an additional counselor. A young apostle, Elder Gordon B. Hinckley. And it's amazing how quickly... It happened that, have you ever seen that haunting picture of President Hinckley at General Conference sitting with empty seats next to him as he was the only oh, health, functioning member of the First Presidency healthy enough to move forward? Uh, thank heavens that President Kimball uh, listened to that, that prompting and went and asked for an additional counselor, those who will be appointed hereafter. Well, the, the Lord's kingdom is one that needs all hands on deck. Verse 2, also unto you, my servant Edward Partridge and his counselors. So we need the, the presiding bishopric uh, involved here. Verse 3, and also unto my faithful servants who are of the high council of my church in Zion. For thus it shall be called, this church in Zion. Uh, in spite of the fact that we're no longer in independence, this is still my church in Zion. Remember we saw this earlier that Zion is more than just a place. Yes, it is a place, but it's also a people. And we spoke of the stake of Kirtland, a stake of Zion, that, oh, even as far away as Ohio, it's still a stake of Zion. If Zion is meant eventually to encompass the earth, then, then yes, uh, far west is not too far away to, to still count as the church in Zion. And so the high council, we're going to need your help on this as well. Remember, there was a high council set up in Kirtland, that's section 102. There's going to be a, a high council here in, in Zion, Missouri, as well. For thus it shall be called, okay? And then there's something else I want to clarify as far as what something should be called. And so he tells us that at the end of 3 and into verse 4. So after having mentioned the First Presidency and the Presiding Bishopric and the High Council, he then says, And to all the elders, so there's those who bear the priesthood, and people, or so all of us, the, all the saints combined, of my Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, scattered abroad in all the world branches and little pockets of, of disciples all over the place. Uh, all of you, all hands on deck, you are needed to build up the kingdom of God. But it's like, wait, 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 what did you, what did you just call us? What did you say? 
Oh, you, you, you caught that, huh? Well, let me repeat it in verse 4. For thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, there have been quite a few different you know, labels for the church to this point. It was the church of Christ. It was the church of the Latter-day Saints. It was the church of God or the church of Jesus Christ. And finally, the Lord is... Let, let me spell this one out for you, okay? Uh, you had good options, okay? Good try. Uh, and at one point it was just focused on me, at the other point it was more focused on you. Is it Christ's church? Well, there's a lot of Christian churches out there. Oh, well, it's the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Like, okay, you overcorrected. Uh, whatever you do, make sure you maintain the name of Jesus in the name of the church. It's his, after all. Uh, if you remember in Third Nephi, where there were multiple times where the saints there, the disciples were, were disputing about things that were really important. Okay? They were just going about it in the wrong way, a contentious way. And one of the, the dilemmas that they faced was, what do we call the church? And the Lord very clearly says to them, well, if, if it's my church, it should be named after, it should bear my name. In fact, there's a principle there about taking upon yourselves the name of Christ. You do that when you make covenants. You join the family of the faithful. And so you take on your father's name. And the father of the covenant is Jesus Christ. Right? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. So there's your new set of parents. And, the, and your father of the covenant is Jesus. Your mother of the covenant is the church. And all those beautiful analogies of what fathers do in terms of providing and presiding and protecting, Jesus does all of that for us. And the mother nurtures. I don't know of a better nurturing organization than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So as you enter this covenant family, this covenant relationship, take upon yourself the name of both of your parents. In some ways, uh, it makes for a, a longer hyphenated uh, last name. But when I, it, to me, it's an interesting thing to see that it's happening more and more frequently. I see it on the backs of NBA jerseys, for example, and there's so many letters, it has to kind of curve around the whole jersey. But a hyphen in the middle because hey, I'm honoring both my father and my mother. And if the, the first name of the church was Church of Jesus, uh, the Church of Christ, well, there's honoring father. If it was, well, but we're the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Okay, well, there's honoring mother. Let's, let's hyphenate this, shall we? In fact, let's get rid of the hyphen, because this is a marriage made in heaven, uh, and we are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And to think of what the church means in our lives, and what it meant for them, that this is the kingdom of God upon the earth, and it's the church, the bride of Christ, that is meant to raise this child. The church is coming forth out of the wilderness, that imagery we saw from Revelation 12. Uh, and here's the husband making sure the wife has his name, but also recognizing her identity. There's something about naming something that provides for identity. And also provide, well, in fact, this, this sweet son of mine that, that just began his missionary service, uh, his name was Jonathan for two days. His name's been Jacob ever since. I love the name Jonathan because I, I love the story of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. And I always just wanted to have a son named Jonathan. So when he was born, my wife and I felt good about that and said, okay, little Jonathan. And as we were about to leave the hospital two days later, I just said to my wife, honey, I'm sorry. I, that's not him. I, I can't call this kid Jonathan. It's just it isn't who he is. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I love the name too, but yeah, it's just not sticking. What do you think? Who, who is this little spirit that the Lord sent us? And the more we thought and pondered, we just knew this is Jacob. Uh, we weren't quite sure if this was Jacob of the Old Testament or Jacob of the Book of Mormon. Uh, he's got traits from both. 
Yeah, we're, we're leaning towards Jacob of the Book of Mormon. It was one of my spiritual heroes. But to see that the name means something, it's, it's part of who you are. I, I, used to, I remember once teaching about uh, Jonathan in the in Old Testament in the seminary. I said, I love Jonathan. I had a son named Jonathan for two days. And, and I just, the, the students, just their eyes got wide, like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then I just realized how it came out. I said, oh, no, he's still alive. We didn't lose him. We just lost the name, okay, because nah, that's not who he was. There's something about naming. There, and even if you think about uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden, and what was his, his main assignment at the time, besides beautifying the Garden of Eden? It was to name all the animals. He had been told that man and woman would have dominion over the, the, the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air. And there's something about being able to name something that helps establish that kind of dominion. I get to define you. Now, there's, that, that can be good or bad, right? And when it comes to bad, it's interesting how often naming has been used to define someone else over against the kind of identity you're trying to protect for yourself. If you think about the history of religion, it's amazing how naming has taken place, where it was all Catholicism. And Catholic simply means universal. So we are the universal church. We're the only one that, that there is, basically. And then when Martin Luther decides, decides to protest against it, he was never intending to create a new religion. He was a Catholic priest, a Catholic monk, a Catholic professor, and just wanted to reform Catholicism. But Catholicism didn't want to be reformed. And so in rejecting Luther and rejecting his protests, they realized we're, you can't go around still calling yourself a Catholic. That, that's, it's, it's diminishing brand purity. And if people see you and think that you're right in claiming Catholicism, it's like, no, 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 that's not Catholicism from our perspective. That's from his. So you want to protest? Fine. Then you are a protestant, a Protestant. In fact, you're a Lutheran, and your followers are too. We, we are maintaining Catholicism for us and us alone. So you've got some other name. That's not even the first time it happened. Remember in the book of Acts, where it says that the, the disciples of Jesus Christ were first called Christians in Antioch? Antioch, I mean, the church has already spread beyond Jerusalem and beyond Galilee up into the north where Antioch is. And, and that's the first time they're branded with this name. And it was a brand in order for Judaism to maintain its brand purity. Jesus was a Jew. Peter, James, and John were Jews. The first generation of disciples of Christ were Jewish disciples of their Messiah. It was Judaism. As far as they understood, it was Judaism fulfilled. This is what Judaism has always been looking forward to. But when other Jews did not accept that, they did not accept Christ's Messiahship, and realized that, wait, if you keep going around claiming that you're Jewish, people will not be able to distinguish you from us. And so we're going we're gonna to have to brand you something different. You follow this. You think he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, if you're speaking Greek? Fine, then you're Christians, Christians. You're not Jewish. Well, fast forward through the Reformation. We got the Protestants. We got the, the Lutherans. You go to the Anglican Church in Great Britain, and you get a guy named John Wesley that is just trying to give some structure to the discipleship uh, inherent in Anglicanism. He saw some room for improvement as far as how do we live the gospel? I wonder if there's a better method to do so. And as he tried to methodize and give some structure and strength to Anglican worship, never intending to create his own church, 
it was the Anglicans that finally created it for him by carving out space outside of themselves and branding them with a name not of their choosing. You want to make a method for the, for the church, for your discipleship? Fine. Then you're a Methodists. And thus begins the Methodist church. Same for us. The, I was grateful to have, in conferences past weekend, I was grateful for Elder Anderson to reiterate and reconfirm the need to use this full title of the church. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Father, Mother of my Covenant. And to see the strength that comes in, in emphasizing that true identity. Because Mormon, as much as we love the prophet Mormon and the book that bears his name, we were never meant to bear that name. It was, that was not our decision. That was Christians trying to maintain brand purity and say, no, you cannot claim Christianity. You're, you're, if people think that's Christianity, that's not our kind of it. So we don't want anything to do with you. We're going to have to brand you something different. And if you believe in, in some book after, named after Mormon, then we're going to name you after the same thing. And you're Mormonites, they call them sometimes. You're just Mormons. And as is so often the case, the name sticks and the people it was affixed to end up owning it for themselves. The Quakers, that's not the name of their church for real. The Shakers, that's not the name of their church for real. So often it's, it's someone on the outside keeping them on the outside. I should say someone on the inside of the previous group wanting to make outsiders of, of what could have been fellow disciples. And so Mormons. I think it's interesting that in the context here of if it's enemies that typically give you those derogatory nicknames, here they are in Far West, here they are in Missouri, surrounded by enemies that are trying to define them and destroy them. And the Lord clarifies, do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? You belong to me. These are the latter days. Actually, let's start at the beginning. This is a church. This is a religious organization. Do, do you see it in those terms? This isn't just some kind of social movement. This is a prophet, not just a CEO. This is a quorum of 12 apostles, not just a board of directors. It's interesting in conference when we sustain the members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. And we sustain them as, as, as members. We, we, we sustain the members of the Quorum of the Twelve first. But then there's a separate... Uh, raising of the hand of, do you sustain them as prophets, seers, and revelators? We do that in temple recommended interviews. It's not just do you sustain them to lead you, but do you sustain them in these specific roles? Do you realize that this is a church? And as a church, it gives structure and meaning to our spirituality. I'm spiritual, not religious. Well, why can't we be both? That's like saying, oh, I'm a, I'm a first great commandment, not a second great commandment kind of a person. Really? Well, the second great commandment is like unto the first. Uh, upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. There needs to be the vertical first great commandment, but there needs to be the horizontal second great. And if all you are is connecting to God in, through your spirituality, but there's no outward reach, there's no spread of the arms, there's no structure to that spirituality to the point of, am I making a difference in the world that I live in? Oh, we need a church. Now that church needs to be of Jesus Christ. We need to, there's the cross. Okay? The horizontal is the church. The vertical is, the, is Jesus. But the church of Jesus Christ, we covenant to take his name upon us. We promise to do all that we do in the name of Jesus Christ. 
In section 18, oh, I hope you know the name by which you will be called in the last day. On, on Judgment Day, when God calls roll, there's only one name on it, and it's Jesus Christ. It is only through the name of Christ that we can be saved. There is no other name given under heaven whereby salvation cometh. There's so many verses that speak of him and of, and of his name. And so to take upon ourselves that name as we, as we enter the church of Jesus Christ. Of Latter-day Saints, these are the latter days. Days of darkness, days of, of opposition before the second coming of Jesus Christ, whose church this is. So, did you not see this coming, Joseph? From the very beginning of this dispensation, the destroyer came to try to keep you from continuing your prayer in the sacred grove. He's, oh, he left, the, the, the shadows were dispelled when that pillar of light came, but he's always waiting in the wings. Missouri, of all places, you know that. These are the latter days. Don't be surprised by the level of opposition that you face. We are preparing the world for the second coming. We're establishing Zion. We're building the new Jerusalem. It's go time. And these are latter-day saints. A saint. The, when, when Sidney Rigdon, uh, before he joined the church, was a member of the Disciples of Christ. And even that wasn't supposed to be like a capital D as if it were some kind of registered trademark. They were trying to avoid names and avoid titles. And it's like, well, the people in the New Testament who followed Jesus were just disciples, so that's all we're going to be. But the lowercase d eventually turned into a capital D. Well, in a similar vein, it's who are the followers of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Paul often referred to them as the saints, saints in Corinth, the saints in Ephesus, the saints in, in Rome. Well, here are the saints in far west and the saints scattered abroad in all the world. You are saints. And we're going to keep this one capital S. I, I want you to live into this title that I'm giving you. It doesn't make you perfect. Remember Nelson Mandela, the, his statement that a saint is simply a sinner who keeps on trying. And, this, and the saints had some sins to overcome there in Zion. They, it wasn't un, entirely on the, Missouri's, uh, on the Missourians' part. The saints had some things to work on themselves. But I do love that the Lord is, is calling them out and calling them up into this kind of true identity. Will you live up to that kind of membership? When my wife and I were first married and, and she was willing to take upon herself my name and become Emily Halverson instead of Emily Stoddard, it was interesting. It took me a long time to get used to that. Uh, one time we were on our honeymoon and she did something just, I don't know, funny. And I was like, I pretend to be shocked. And I was like, oh, Emily Stoddard. And it just came out because that's what I'd been calling her that year plus that we'd been dating. And, and, and she just, <laughs> the way she reacted was hilarious. She's like, oh, oh, I'm not good enough to be Emily Halverson now. Huh? I, I, I say one thing and it offends you. And now I'm back to being Emily Stoddard. And, and she was just razzing me. But it was interesting when we got back from our honeymoon and she was teaching at the MTC at the time and she got a new name tag made. It used to say Sir Stoddard, you know, the French for Sister Stoddard. Uh, and she got a new one that said Sir Halverson. And, uh, and she wore it. And the old district that, was the, that she'd had before was still finishing their time at the MTC. And they're like, oh, it's, it's so weird. We can't call you that. It's just, ah, we're not used to it. But as soon as they left to go uh, hit the mission field and a new district came in, they saw the tag and said, oh, Sir Halverson, uh, that's, that's who she is. And they didn't know anything different. And think of how often you call your teacher by name 
And she heard that name so often that she realized before I did, that is who I am. I'm Sister Halverson now. And there's something about hearing your name and recognizing who it is that's being addressed. And have you ever been in a, in a crowded store and your kid, child is on somewhere and they're like, Mom! And like 20 heads turn. Uh, lots of moms here, okay? Or Dad! And everyone is looking. Well, Sister Halverson, did you have to double, double take before you realized, oh, that is me now? Yeah. And when someone is calling for a saint, do you turn? When someone is seeking someone who truly is trying to follow the example of Jesus Christ, is that us? I hope as we refer to ourselves by the full name of the church, we'll recognize who we are and will help other people recognize whose we are simultaneously. Now, if we are true saints of the latter days, true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what must we do? Verse 5, Verily I say unto you all, Arise, shine forth, that thy light may be a standard for the nations. Yes, these are dark days in Missouri. No wonder so much light is needed. So, so get up. Get, don't, don't be down on the ground. Get up. Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men, as Lehi says. Uh, shine forth. Don't put your light under a bushel. This is a city set on a hill that must not be hid by its inhabitants. Be a light to the nations. In Revelation chapter 1, when, when John begins to see this vision of the Lord, he sees him originally surrounded by seven golden candlesticks. And as he wonders about that, the Lord clarifies the symbolism. Oh, those represent my churches. Seven, this number of totality, of completeness. And so here I am in the midst of my entire church. Not just seven branches scattered throughout, throughout Turkey. Uh, it's, this is all my saints scattered abroad in all the world. And I'm in your midst, even though things are hard. And what must you be? Light. Be light. Shine forth. And yet, I love the imagery that, that John used. It wasn't just that they were lights around him. It was candlesticks that represent the church. Because the candlestick is not the light itself. It simply holds it up. Jesus clarified that to the Nephites in 3 Nephi, right? I am the light that you must hold up. That which you have seen me do. So if we are the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then we are candlesticks that are meant to raise him in the sight of all those around us and make sure we are allowing his light to shine forth. And standard for the nation? A standard is something fixed. It's in place. It can be counted on. It's the, it's the unchanging thing whereby everything else is measured. My sons are way better basketball players than I would ever, can ever be. Uh, they're, they're great shooters. And it's interesting to see that fixed standard that they are trying to aim for all the time and usually, and usually hitting. We live in a day that doesn't want any standards. We live in a day that wants to play basketball with no hoop, where people can just run around and throw the ball in the air and, and say that it counts for whatever points they wanted. That's the world of moral relativism. It's a basketball game with no hoop. There's, it's not about falling short of it. It's not about missing the mark, because uh, everyone's going to do that. But to have a mark to miss is important, because it establishes the, the goal of this game. Now, this is not a game 
but to have a standard and to try our best to live up to it so that we can show to the rest of the world around us that this is what we're all aiming for. I saw a YouTube video that my, from someone that my kids love to watch and it's this incredible engineer that can just make the, the wildest inventions. And one of his projects was to make a dartboard that would ensure you never missed. And so with some kind of you know, optical sensors and things and on this, this, this movement uh, that in a heartbeat, it, you could throw the dart, it would recognize, okay, from that distance and speed and trajectory and whatever, it's going to end up right here. So the dartboard itself will move so that you get a, a bullseye again. That's the world that, the, that, that society want, thinks that it's living in. That just throw the ball, the, the hoop will come to you. Throw the dart and, the, and the, bar, the board will move. No, standards must be fixed. And the Church of Jesus Christ has to stand firm in the standards that God has given us because we are the standard for the nations. I pray that we're living up to that. Now, what else are we supposed to be doing as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Verse 6, that the gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes may be for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath, when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. When it shall be poured out, not if, it's coming. These are the latter days after all, and we are trying to prepare the earth for the second coming. If the Book of Mormon is our scale model, uh, our preview of coming attractions, we're preparing for chapter 11 of 3 Nephi, when the Savior comes. But what is chapter 11 preceded by? the destruction and darkness and death of chapter 8. The, the voice from heaven speaking comfort in, in chapter 9 and 10. Uh, to see what we're, we're headed towards. Yes, we will need a defense. Yes, we will need a refuge because the storm clouds are gathering. The wrath of God it will be poured out without mixture, he says at the end of verse 6. Without mixture? That is... It's not watered down, is the way we could put that. It is, I mean, the, cu the cup of the wrath of God, that bitter cup that Jesus drank to the dregs, it's refilling with our wickedness. And it's not watered down. It's incredible, the, the concentrated iniquity of our day, this day of moral relativism, this day where, where not, nothing is labeled as wrong. So no wonder things keep getting worse. We're not fighting back against it. We're not pulling in the reins. And if that wickedness is, is undiluted, if God's judgment and justice is, is not, not going to be watered down, then no wonder it takes a group of true saints with an undiluted discipleship to arise and shine forth as lights and standards to a world that is desperately seeking light and standard. As Isaiah said, they are groping like blind men for the wall. If you've ever been in the, the cultural hall at church with all the lights off, it's kind of an eerie feeling. Uh, and it's interesting to watch. Usually what we do in the dark is we slow down and we stick our hands out to see if there's anything around us that we can feel. I don't want to trip over something I can't see. And ideally, we are groping for a wall. That's what I want. I want to know my limits. I don't want, I'm not going to just run, uh, run wild in the middle of a large, dark space. I could end up smashing into something. I need to know my limits. Have you sensed little children that even as they're pushing their limits, it's, it's, that's what they're in search of? 
What, what's the line I'm not supposed to cross, Mom and Dad? Help me understand. And in a world with no standards, in a world without much light, no wonder society is groping like blind people in, in the dark, searching for walls to hold on to. That, that has to be us. That has to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's it, the, the defense, the refuge, come in from the rain. I've used the analogy of the umbrella before. And our church is the one with the largest umbrella. It's as wide as the love of God and the redeeming reach of Jesus Christ. Because all God's children, those who live in the church, live out of the church, and have ever lived, there's perfect, uh, perfect the saints, proclaim the gospel, redeem the dead. This is the only church on the earth that has a, a, a theology and a practice that extends the umbrella, a defense and a refuge from the storm as far as that storm might reach. So may we rise, may we shine, and as we do so, may others gather. Oh, they won't be able to help it. Remember back in section 45, once they see what Zion really is, if you want to live at peace with your neighbors, this is the spot. Come. And so this gathering continues. Now, for now, the center spot of gathering is going to be far west. Yes, we'd hoped for independence. We'll get there. But verse 7, Let the city far west be a holy and consecrated land unto me, and it shall be called most holy, for the ground upon which thou standest is holy. Yes, Moses, take your sandals off. Okay, here's this burning bush kind of an experience. And to see that even here, yes, it's not independence, but if, if Zion is as much people as it is place, then wherever those people gather, it's their feet that are making the ground. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that publish peace? Well, your, those holy feet are making holy the ground underneath it. We talked about that in terms of every temple dedicated as an epicenter of holiness that then begins to radiate outwards in all directions. And we got another, another bunch of temple stakes in the ground that President Nelson just announced this past weekend. Uh, it's amazing. And there will be epicenters of holiness uh, more and more dotting the earth. Far West is going to be one of them. In fact, speaking of temples as those epicenters, verse 8, Therefore I command you to build a house unto me for the gathering together of my saints, that they may worship me. Now, of course, you don't have to be in the temple. You can worship God anywhere. That was the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. You think it's only in this spot? Well, it's, it's less about where and more about how. Worship him in spirit and in truth. But that's not to say that places aren't important. And there are sites of inherent holiness. And the temple is one of them. So here in Far West, I want you to build a temple as well. In verse 9, let there be a beginning of this work, a foundation, a preparatory work, this following summer. Remember back in section 94 when they were building the temple in Kirtland and other buildings, and, and I'll give you patterns for all of them. And the first pattern was, how do you lay out and prepare a foundation? Same idea here. You have to start from somewhere. And so God will give us these kinds of patterns for preparatory work. In verse 10, let the beginning be made on the fourth day of July next. And from that time forth, let my people labor diligently to build a house unto my name. Now, for a bunch of patriotic Americans, uh, many of their fathers or grandfathers fought in the Revolutionary War. The fourth day of July? Yeah, that seems like a good one. We may not be in Independence, Missouri anymore. 
But on the day where we celebrate our independence, we will begin this work of preparing a foundation for the city of God. You want to talk about, or the temple here, particularly in the far west, you want to talk about great symbolism of, of creating a defense and a refuge. We are, we are leaving Britain. We are beginning our own, our own day of independence. And on the 4th of July, what a great time to be able to begin that work. Now, it's interesting in 11, in one year from this day, let them recommence laying the foundation of my house. I'm not 100% sure what the Lord is referring to as far as recommence. I've wondered, is verse 9 and 10, this preparatory work, this foundation, let that start on, on the 4th of July. Uh, there's going to be a lot more work that is required. I mean, I don't know if we're, are we clearing land and timber? Are we designating a spot? Are we beginning to save money? Uh, there's, it's interesting that even laying the cornerstone is not the first step. There's a lot more work that goes into the, prepar the preparatory stage. And so I'm wondering if right here, if you look at the date at the beginning, this is April 26, 1838. So this is the end of April, we got May, June, beginning of July. So for the next two and a half months, get ready for this, okay? For the next two and a half months, designate the spot, uh, get workers ready, uh, save, or save the money and start designating it for this is, this is temple intended. And then on the 4th of July, we'll begin that work. But the laying of the foundation of the house... We're going to recommence that. Now, recommence, does that mean something's going to happen and then it's, something's going to get in the way? I've wondered if the Lord is foreshadowing something here. I don't know. But a year from today, so on April 26, 1839, that's when the foundation of the house is really going to get going. Everything else up to that point is preparatory work. Okay. So, And we're going to see that when we get to section 118. Keep this date in mind, Okay, this April 26th. Now, verse 12, thus let them from that time forth labor diligently until it shall be finished from the cornerstone thereof unto the top thereof until there shall not anything remain that is not finished. I mean, we're trying to endure to the end, right? And so if we are laboring diligently back in verse 10 during the preparatory stage, then in verse 12, we are still laboring diligently during the building stage. Again, back 94, it's Creation, preparation, foundation, then it's construction, and then it's dedication. And diligent labor will be required for all three phases. Now, as we'll see in subsequent history, and especially when we get to section 118 today to explain what's going on during that time period, everything got in the way of verse 12. They were able to lay the foundation uh, in verse of, that verse 11 speaks of on that one year from today. Okay, on April 26, 1839, they did exactly that. That's the story of 118 we'll get to. But from that time forth, were they able to finish it? Were they able to go from cornerstone to capstone, from the cornerstone to the top thereof? Not at all. It's interesting when you think about the kingdom of God. Back in Ephesians, Paul talks about a foundation of prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Uh, we talk about the Book of Mormon as the keystone of our religion, the thing that the, the weight-bearing stone in this arch. But as we build upon it, President Benson said that just as the Book of Mormon is the keystone, the Doctrine and Covenants is the capstone of our religion. And if if the if the keystone brings us to Jesus, the capstone brings us to His Church, 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now the work is done. Well, are we still, again, we have to get past the specifics of the Far West Missouri Temple because they were able to lay the cornerstone and nothing else. And, and well, what's taking us so long? They, they were told they've got to keep laboring diligently until it's finished, until the cornerstone and up to the top, everything. Well, we're doing that. It's not in Far West. We still have some work to do to be able to build a temple there. But in terms of laboring diligently to build the entire structure of the kingdom of God, we've never taken time off from that. And the, the foundation that was laid in the Joseph Smith period has been built upon the, the cornerstones, the keystones, the capstones that still await us as revelation continues to go forth. I am grateful for a church that has never lost sight of the ultimate goal until nothing remains that is not finished. We, we are far from finished. And do you get a sense, especially when you watch President Nelson, this the picking up of speed, the rolling up of sleeves, the, the work that is, remains to be done. Oh, there is yet a capstone in our future. And we need to continue laboring diligently until the Lord says it is finished. After all, he is the author and finisher of our faith. Now in verse 13, Verily I say unto you, let not my servant Joseph, neither my servant Sidney, neither my servant Hiram, there's the, the first presence he referred to back in verse 1, don't let them get in debt anymore for the building of a house unto my name. Now, <laughs> easier said than done, Lord. Uh, don't get in debt? Oh, I, I wish we didn't have to. Believe me, debt's the last thing I want. Uh, I would so much prefer having the money on hand to be able to pay my expenses. And that's how the church is feeling there. Especially after the collapse of the Kirtland Safety Society Bank, uh, the panic of 1837. I mean, it's now 1838, but there's still a lot of panicking going on. And, and as he was told back in section 104, I will help you pay your debts. There's the, the foolish, the folly trip to, to Salem that we talked about. Really? You want me to build a house from, from cornerstone up to capstone and not be in debt to it? How's that going to work? Well, be patient. Wait till the end of today's lesson, and we'll talk about section 119 and section 120. We'll get there. Verse 14, but however it's going to happen, let a house be built unto my name, according to the pattern which I will show unto them. So there's this idea back to patterns from section 94. Uh, even patterns of, well, how am I going to pay for this? I'm amazed at the church's ability now to, to never be in debt. I mean, to think of how many temples President Nelson has, has announced every six months. And they just, they're all over. And to realize the church already has enough in store and to spare. Well, this is starting to sound like section 104. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, the Lord's, the, the, the saints must be provided for in mine own way, both temporally and spiritually. And this verse about no debt, the, the church has taken incredibly seriously. The church still, at this time period, had many debts yet to pay. And it wasn't until Lorenzo Snow and his emphatic, tireless emphasis on tithing, which is what we're going to see in 119 and 120 today, though it, not until then could the church finally stand independent. Not until then could the, could, could the church 
fully be living into this on a general level, that no debt on anything, but here at least, no debt for a temple in Far West. We, we've, got to, we've got to get past that, that model. I've got a different, a better pattern for you to follow. Now verse 15, And if my people build it not according to the pattern which I shall show unto their presidency, I will not accept it at their hands. I mean, that's just good construction, right? I mean, if you're the, the general contractor and the architect gave you the floor plans, the blueprints, and you don't follow them, you're probably not going to get paid. It's like, what, what, what did you build? It's like, well, yeah, I just, I didn't really agree with how you laid it out. And so I ended up doing it this way instead. It's like, what? You're the contractor. You just, I'm the architect. You build according to my plans, according to my patterns. And we have to follow divine patterns for us to be acceptable to the Lord. Verse 16, if my people do build it according to the pattern, which I shall show unto their presidency, even my servant Joseph and his counselors, then I will accept it at the hands of my people. It's as simple as that. Just follow the plan. Even to the point, I, I got a twinge of guilt as I was pondering this, because we talked about a couple weeks ago at the Kirtland Temple about cedar and gold. And the Temple of Solomon, we're going to use the, the most amazing materials we possibly could. Well, the saints didn't have cedar and gold in Kirtland, but they did the best they could. And that reminds me of Nephi's temple, where he said, we didn't have the same kind of materials that they had to build the Temple of Solomon. So we did the best we could with the materials that were available to us. But we did follow the pattern of the Temple of Solomon. We built it the way the, the, the basic design structure, we just use different materials. And, and I love that thought of, as important as cedar and gold is, that might be one person's version of the best possible materials. Someone else, this is the best we have. This is my widow's might. I hope that it's acceptable. Well, of course it is, as long as it follows the pattern. Even in, in so many of the smaller temples built uh, right before 2000 under President Hinckley, or the large temples that were built throughout the 1980s under President Kimball, there was a common pattern that they were following. But they did use different materials, in, and especially local materials, and local kind of architectural motifs and designs, but the, the same basic pattern was followed. And that's important here as well. There is so much room for diversity in the church, and you doing things in your unique way you have unique spiritual gifts to guide you in those directions. But there is an underlying pattern that we are all called upon to follow. Verse 17, again, verily I say unto you, it is my will that the city of far west should be built up speedily by the gathering of my saints. Get them here as quickly as you can. We need a place. And again, that's what Joseph Smith said about the gathering. That's what, so the second time he's mentioned that word in this revelation. We've got to get here. got to bring them, bring them in. And Joseph taught that the reason for gathering the saints in any age that the church has been upon the earth is to build temples. And that's a focal point in Far West too. So gather them. Do it speedily. All hands on deck. Verse 18, And also that other places should be appointed for stakes in the regions round about, as they shall be manifested unto my servant Joseph from time to time. We see the growth. Uh, with the writing on the wall is growth. The writing on the wall is gathering and growing to gather more and grow from there and eventually spread across the earth. Stakes, plural, even of the same singular Zion. Joseph will understand. 
I'll reveal how it's supposed to run from time to time. Line upon line, precept upon precept, yes. Verse 19 then, For behold, I will be with him. I will sanctify him before the people. For unto him have I given the keys of this kingdom and ministry. Even so, amen. Joseph, I know you may have wondered last week as you studied section 113 about Isaiah chapter 11. Does it still apply? Are you still called and chosen? Are you still this, this, this new stem that's growing out of, of the stump? Do you still, are you connected to the true vine? Yes, Joseph, I'm with you. I know you desire to be with me. I will sanctify you, which means you're in need of some sanctification. You're, you're, you're working on it. I get that. And I'm working on you. Let's both be patient, okay? You have the keys of the kingdom, and I haven't taken them from you, in spite of the fact that so many people, including those that were close followers before, have abandoned you, uh, to, to have left Kirtland behind with its temple, but also to have left Kirtland behind with its apostasy. I am with you, and you hold the keys of the kingdom and the ministry. So go out and minister. Joseph would do exactly that. Now, in section 116, if you're a, a chapter a night kind of a person, well, <laughs> you've got a good night ahead uh, as far as time constraints are concerned. You only got one verse, okay? Uh, and in 116, this is about Adam on Diamond. This is uh, not far from far west. And so as, as he's thinking of extending, gathering the saints, growing Zion, other stakes in the regions roundabout, they get to a place called Spring Hill in Davies County, Missouri. And here in section 116, it's revealed, oh, the true identity, the, the true name of this place. It says Spring Hill is named by the Lord. It's like, you, I don't know who named Spring Hill that first, okay? Some Missourian probably. But Spring Hill is named by the Lord, Adam on thy Amen. Because, said he, it is the place where Adam shall come to visit his people, or the Ancient of Days shall sit as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now we saw hints of that in section 107. You can go back and listen to some of that. Uh, as it spoke of Adam coming shortly before his death and blessing all of this righteous posterity of his. You see, that's, that's looking past. Looking future, you see this in section 27 about this great final sacrament meeting before the millennial reign uh, that will be at Adam on Diamond also where dispensation heads and those who have held, held keys throughout all, dispensa all dispensations of the earth uh, will come and, re and restore those keys back to their source in Jesus Christ. For Adam to be involved in that, Amun is this word for God, just as Jesus is son, Amun, the son of God, the son of the man of holiness. So here, here you have Adam, you have Amun, the, the, even in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is humanity and divinity coming together in this valley of Adam on Diamond. Answering the question that he assumed was on people's minds, Orson Pratt once said, perhaps you may be anxious to know what on Diamond means. It means the place where Adam dwelt. Amon signifies God. The whole term means valley of God where Adam dwelt. 
It is in the original language spoken by Adam as revealed to the prophet Joseph. There you have it, the valley of God where Adam dwelt post-fall. Now, it's interesting to think of a valley of God. We usually think of the mountain of the Lord. Well, there's valleys of God too. Oh, yeah. He's the God of the hills and the God of the valleys, the Old Testament says. Tis to see in the high points of our life, the best of times, but also the low points, that though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with me. He, he will guide me. He will comfort me. The Lord is my shepherd, after all. And sheep end up taking the shepherd lots of different places, high and low. He'll be here. Even this idea of the fall of Adam and Eve and where they were the casting out when they went east of Eden. Well, it's interesting to think of if they're to the east. I used to do this with, with some of my seminary or institute students where I'd get them to stand up in class and, okay, close your eyes. And I'm going to give you a, a direction, a compass direction, north, south, east, west. And I want you to turn with your eyes closed so you, you can't cheat with other people. Face that direction. It was interesting to watch how directionally challenged a lot of my students were. Where I'd say, okay, face north. And by the time they were done turning, it was like every, every direction of the compass. It's like, okay, well, we've got some work to do. Uh, or I would say, okay, face, you know, I'd make a, a, there'd be a landmark in town or something. And I'd say, okay, face the Salt Lake Temple. And they'd have to, I don't know, where is that from here? And they'd, they'd turn. I would sometimes say to them, face the presence of God. And they're like, huh? A lot of them would just look upward. <laughs> and I'd laugh. I'm like, oh, that's good. That's creative. Nice. Uh, I, I just, if you were to enter God's presence, which direction would you go? And they're like, wait, what? And I would point them to the west, to the far west. And they'd be confused, like, okay, there's Halverson's Californianism coming out of him again. No, no, no. If the fall was east of Eden, then to go back to Eden, to come back into the presence of God, which direction would you have to go? Oh, you'd have to go west. Hmm, okay, there's our first step. What else would you have to do? You remember the topography of Eden? That there were four rivers that flowed out of Eden? Well, if a river flows out of a place, then that place must be higher than its surroundings. So the fall was literal in a way. It was a descent into mortality. And so to return to the presence of God and his promise of immortality, there is an ascent required. So we are going westward and we are going upward. Hmm, sounds like the trek to Salt Lake already. Uh, but westward and upward. Oh, and then we're going to need to pass the angels that stand as sentinels because there is cherubim and the flaming sword keeping us from the tree of life. Are we starting to sense the temple symbolism here? Interesting that as these saints are gathering to a valley of God, one that's even called, uh, in, in, for the Missourians, Spring Hill. I even, I even like that symbolism. A hill. Yes, this valley of Adam and Diamond, but a hill, a, a place we're trying to rise that we are looking for ways to ascend the mountain of the Lord to come back into his presence because it's spring hill. The fall has occurred, bringing with it this winter of death. But for the promise of new life, of new beginnings, a spring, the, the fall is not meant to be permanent, Eve or Adam. There is a spring ahead. 
And there is a hill that will draw you out of the valley of despair that you are in. Ultimately to bring you to a further west and higher mountain of the Lord. I had such a small, short uh, section at 116. But even the names that are, are used. And uh, there's so much beautiful symbolism here. And, and the symbolism really does point to the ultimate symbolic place, which is the Lord's house. The Ancient of Days shall sit. There's future. He came once, there's past, DNC 107. Future, he'll come again, second coming, great last sacrament meeting, DNC 27. Even when we sing the hymn, Adam on Diamond, which unfortunately seems to be in the sealed portion of the hymn book. We, we don't sing that one often enough. But W.W. Phelps, was great restoration poet, wrote these words, and think about past and future, and what that means about what we should be doing in our present. The earth was once a garden place, with all her glories common. There's Zion for you, right? One heart, one mind, everything in common. No poor among us. And men did live a holy race, and worship Jesus face to face in Adam on Diamond. There's looking back. There's the past. We read that Enoch walked with God. There's another nod to, to Zion. Above the power of mammon, while Zion spread herself abroad and saints and angels sang aloud in Adam on Diamond. There's past tense as well. Her land was good and greatly blessed beyond all Israel's Canaan. Oh, a promised land, a place of gathering. Her fame was known from east to west, even far west. Her peace was great and pure the rest of Adam on Diamond. Now, after looking back at its at its glories then. Look ahead to the glories yet to come. Hosanna to such days to come. The Savior's second coming. When all the earth in glorious bloom affords the saints a holy home. Like Adam on Diamond. That is that spreading of holiness. Radiating out from every epicenter. To understand this holy home that reminds us of the home that, that we had with God before. And the home that we will make of this earth as it becomes sanctified, glorified, receives its paradisical glory. Is renewed and becomes the celestial kingdom. Adam on diamond. On the global scale. I'm actually reminded that when I taught seminary in Utah 20 years ago. And the most popular senior trip for most of the kids was a trip, a church history trip, where you'd go all the way back to, to Vermont and begin with the birth, birthplace of Joseph Smith and then work your way west. Manifest destiny, right? As I asked the students when they got back and were just so on fire, what were your favorite spots? And, and many of the things they mentioned were what I expected. They loved the sacred grove. They loved the Kirtland Temple. They loved Nauvoo. But the two that surprised them, which in turn surprised me, was the birthplace in Sharon, Vermont. Because it was like, well, I mean, technically Joseph didn't really do anything there, right? I mean, credit Lucy Mack, right? She did all the work, labor, for sure. Uh, but I've been there as well, and it is such a, there's just a holiness there. There's such a, a peace and a power 
that accompanies the birthplace of the prophet. The other place that students always seemed to remark upon was Adam on Diamond. It surprises them because there's nothing there. You, you go and it's, okay, fields, what am I looking at here? But there's, whether or not there's much to see, there is something to feel there. And, and there's a sense of past and future coming together in their present, like Adam on Diamond. I'm, I'm amazed by, oh, that, so grateful that these sweet teenagers could just sense what happened here? Or what's going to happen here? There's, there's a feeling, there's a spirit in this place. Well, it's the spirit of Adam on Diamond. Now, section 117, we're going to take what we saw in 115 that were general instructions for the saints, all those scattered abroad around the world, and now get much more specific with a few individual members of the church that had some, some responsibilities to perform especially there among the saints gathering in far west. Specifically, William Marks will be, will be called out by name, Noel K. Whitney, and Oliver Granger. Now, Marks is going to become the state president. Uh, Whitney is the, is the bishop. Uh, Oliver Granger? Who was that? Well, glad you asked. In section 117, verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord unto my servant, William Marks, and also unto my servant, Noel K. Whitney, let them settle up their business speedily and journey from the land of Kirtland before I, the Lord, send again the snows upon the earth. So we just mentioned Spring Hill and its symbolism and the fall. Well, now it's, it, winter is on its way. Right now, it's only the middle of July. So you've got some time ahead. I'm trying to give you a pattern to prepare and some time to actually do it in. But Brother Marks, Brother Whitney, wrap it up. Okay? You're still back in Kirtland. And... It's interesting that so many of the saints, Joseph particularly, and Sidney Rigdon, uh, get out of town as quickly as they can when it's, they realize our lives aren't even safe here with all of the apostates and, and dissenters that are, that are really seeking to oust Joseph Smith from, from uh, the keys of the kingdom. His life's in danger, and so he comes to, to Missouri. But there are some saints, not just apostates and dissenters, but faithful saints that, I mean, this is where I live. The temple is here. Uh, all I know is Kirtland, but here the Lord is being much more specific. William and Newell, it's time to gather. And for, although for the last, oh, seven years, we have had two church headquarters, now we're down to only one. And we need a, a place of gathering for the strength of Zion. So settle up your business, do it speedily, and come, journey, before the snow falls, there's an interesting verse in Joseph Smith Matthew, again, Matthew 24, speaking of the second coming, where the Lord says, But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now, again, as a wimpy Southern Californian that, that doesn't like it when the temperature is in the 60s even, uh, it, it's, there's something about avoiding a winter journey. If you've ever had to help somebody move in the winter, that's rough to load up the trailer when the snow's fallen, uh, especially back in the 19th century. Hope that your journey isn't in wintertime when circumstances outside of you are slowing you down. Let's settle up our business. Let's do it speedily. Let's journey before it's, it gets harder than it already is. Let, let's, let's get going here 
and so they need to. Verse 2, let them awake and arise. Come forth, don't tarry, for I the Lord command it. Therefore, verse 3, if they tarry, it shall not be well with them. It makes you wonder, is there, is there some dragging of feet? I mean, I can't, okay, Whitney, for example, I mean, here's, here's a bishop, the bishop in Kirtland. The, the, store, the storehouse was his store, right? The store, his store. It's got his name on it. Well, it still belongs to the Lord. Ah, this, I've sunk down roots here, and they're deep. Well, I know, and I'm sorry. But don't tarry. I, the Lord, command it. Verse 4 suggests that, yeah, there is some stuff holding you back. So let them repent of all their sins, of all their covetous desires before me, saith the Lord. For what is property unto me, saith the Lord? It's amazing how often he's saying, saith the Lord, saith the Lord, uh, I, the Lord, thus saith the Lord. It's, this is not just Joseph saying, hey, guys, I miss you. Or I could use a little help down here in far west. It's all hands on deck. You no, know, it's this is coming from the Lord. You need to understand that because, yes, this is a difficult sacrifice that I'm asking of you to just pick up and go. But what is property unto me, saith the Lord? There have been so many hints about that throughout the Doctrine and Covenants so far. I just mentioned to Newell K. Whitney the his store versus the store where the Lord corrects himself by removing the possessive pronoun. I'm trying to remove possessiveness from all of you. Builders of Zion, no poor among you, one heart, one mind. Uh, take your name off the building. In fact, take yourself out of the building. In fact, take yourself out of the place where the building has been built. Awake, arise, repent, get past your covetous desires. Remember earlier when they were first leaving New York and Pennsylvania to come to Ohio? And the Lord says to them, yeah, just leave. Yeah, if you can't, you can, belt, you can sell your homes, you can rent your homes, or you can just leave your homes. That's always an option. It's, in fact, it's the easiest one as far as logistics is concerned. Just go. But, yeah, but that's the hardest one economically. I, I stand to lose everything. Well, that's one way of looking at it. You also stand to gain everything. So just come. I, I love the perspective of Nephi when he tries to gather all of his father's possessions that were left behind in Jerusalem to go buy the plates from Laban. And as we know from 1 Nephi, that doesn't go according to plan. In fact, they end up losing all that stuff. And that's the straw that breaks the camel's back for Laman and Lemuel. Like especially Laman, the oldest, that was going to have a double portion. It's like, I just lost twice as much as you did, Nephi. But to that Nephi, and then he beats him with a stick to the angel has to break up the fight, right? But I could picture Nephi going, what do you mean you lost more twice as much as me? None of us lost anything. We already left that. Oh, I get it. You hadn't, you didn't leave it the first time. No wonder you keep saying, I want to go back to Jerusalem, to the land of your inheritance. Uh, you were probably grateful dad left all that stuff because you can just go back and pick up where dad left off. No, you see, I left it all the first time. So leaving it the second time was not hard. Even the language he uses when he describes it, he just says, we were, uh, when, when they're being chased by Laban's servants that are out to kill them, Nephi simply says, and it came to pass that we did flee before the servants of Laban, and we were obliged to leave behind our property, and it fell into the hands of Laban. I love the words obliged and fell. It's not, that jerk stole our stuff. It's, 
Uh, we were obliged to leave it behind. And I suppose it, it fell into his, it just kind of plop, fell into his lap. Oh well, uh, easy come, easy go. It, really? It certainly wasn't easy come, easy go for Laman and Lemon. But like I said before, Nephi really left it the first time he left it. And, and that's what the Lord is inviting these well-meaning, but uh, it's hard for them to do it, these saints, these leaders. Get over your covetousness. This goes back to what Lord, the Lord had said to Martin Harris. Quit coveting your own stuff, because it's not your stuff. Same with you, Newell K. Whitney. Remember that phrase, what is property unto me? Then add verse 5. Let the properties of Kirtland be turned out for debts, saith the Lord. So there's more of the logistical. There's all this land here, or possessions and belongings, and we're leaving it behind. We're, they, a lot of the saints have already left, Joseph included. And so take whatever you can and sell it to be able to pay down the debts that you owe, because you do have to pay them. Don't go into debt for the temple in Far West. Try to pay the debts you already have. Use the property in Kirtland to be able to do that. But then the other phrase in verse 5, let them go saith the Lord. And whatsoever remaineth, let it remain in your hands, saith the Lord. I want you to take in your head, combine these phrases, what is property unto me? And then thinking about the specifics of those properties, let them go. Just let it go. When you have a tithing check to sign, just let it go. When you're wrestling with how generous to be in a fast offering or humanitarian aid or general missionary fund or temple construction fund. There's a lot of places where you can contribute. Just let it go. When you see, there's so many ways that we can say to the, the things that, that are possessions that end up possessing us, to just look at them and realize, wait, you're, you're just stuff. You're, you're just property. And what is property unto the Lord? So what is property unto me? Let it go. I, I love that phrase. And to see people, whether in their wealth or in their poverty, take whatever they have to consecrate and to say, let it go. Oh, talk about no covetous desires on their part. That, that's an amazing thing to see. This is self-sacrifice for a greater cause. The Lord tries to make it easier on them, as he so often does. Remember so many of the revelations we've seen so far when he talks about consecration? He begins with some kind of self-introduction about, I've created the earth. I've made it enough and to spare. Uh, there's so much of that, just as a reminder. I'm playing the consecration game too, okay? If you're willing to give all yours, I'm willing to give all mine, and believe me, that's a lot. You don't stand to lose, you stand to gain. Similar here in verse 6. For have I not the fowls of heaven, and also the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the mountains? Have I not made the earth? Do I not hold the destinies of all the armies of the nations of the earth? But therefore, verse 7, will I not make solitary places to bud and to blossom, and to bring forth in abundance, saith the Lord? You see what he's saying here? I, I love that the Lord is trying to help them put, put it all in perspective. No wonder what is property unto me. Because I can make more of it. You're worried about being driven off your land? I created the whole earth. I, I can make land. Okay? That's not a problem. 
Uh, you're worried about leaving all your, the, the, the supplies in the, in the bishop's storehouse? Who's in charge of the fowls of heaven? Whether that's calling forth the quails to feed the house of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, whether that's inspiring the ravens to bring a raven ration to Elijah so that he survives the famine. I control the fish of the sea to the point I can tell these hungry apostles which side of the boat the school of fish is hiding in. It's amazing. Or, t or take your five loaves and two little fishes and I'll multiply them to feed the multitudes. Or even Peter didn't pay your taxes, huh? Okay. Uh, and realizing now that I didn't pay mine, I, I shouldn't have to, right? I'm the king of kings. But lest we should offend them, that's fine, we can do this. Go down and catch a fish. And the first one you pull up from the lake, look inside. There'll be enough coins within it to pay the, the, the tax for both of us. The, the, I understand what the Lord's getting at. It's, I got this. What's property? You, I know you need property. I know you need funds to pay off the debts. I get that. And so do the best that you can to, to make it happen. Sell all the, the properties in Kirtland. But trust me. So we talked about in section 104 about how to get out of debt at all. It's diligence. Increase your income. It's humility. Lower your, your expenses. But pray in faith. Because I control the fowls of heaven and the fish of the sea. I control the beasts of the mountains. You think about Nephi and his starving family in the wilderness. Well, just repent, Lehi. Turn to me. Trust in God. Follow a Leahona that will work according to your faith and heed and diligence. And Nephi, I'll lead you right to the beast of the mountain that will feed your family. Like he said in 7, about making solitary places bud and blossom. Oh, to make the desert blossom as the rose. When famous explorers who had already checked out the Salt Lake Valley and caught wind that, that Brigham Young might be thinking about that spot and they warn him, I'll give $50 of gold for the first person that can make a, you know, grow a bushel of corn there. I mean, it's, it's a desert place. It's not going to support. I mean, even the Native Americans stay in Utah County or Utah Valley more than Salt Lake Valley. Uh, good luck with that, Brother Brigham. Well, I trust a, a God who can make solitary places bud and blossom. I trust a God who can bring forth in abundance. And it makes it so much easier for me to say to other things, let them go. In fact, it was that same Brigham Young who said, say to the fields, flocks, herds, gold, silver, goods, chattels, tenements, possessions, and to all the world, stand aside. Get away from my thoughts, for I am going up to worship the Lord. I love Brother Brigham's boldness there. Look at all your stuff. Check, take the whole inventory and stare each possession down and say to it, stand aside. I'm going to go worship God. Here, say to it, let, let it go. Let all of it go. And, and, and trust in a God who will always provide for you. Don't let the things that, that you possess, possess you. He says more of it in verse 8. Is there not room enough on the mountains of Adam on Diamond? We just talked about that in 116. 
even in your place of fallenness, even east of Eden, I provide. Yes, you got some work to do, Adam. By the sweat of thy brow, that you'll work and eat bread all the days of your life. But you'll be growing in the, in the process. There's the, even in a fallen world, you'll be taken care of. There is room on the mountains of Adam and Diamond, and on the plains of Olaha Shineha, or the land where Adam dwelt. We get all kinds of vocabulary words in these last two revelations. Uh, Olaha Shineha in the in the book of uh, Abraham. The Lord gives, jo uh, well, gives Abraham and us a bit of a, a vocabulary lesson. And Shineha means son. And so I'm not sure about Olaha, but the son is part, S-U-N, is part of that title as well. So from mountains to plains, from the place of the fall, Adam and Diamond, to the place of the sun, Olaha Shineha, the land where Adam dwelt, all of this. I, there's room here. I provide for you, even in your fallen world. So why would you do this? And I love the way verse 8 ends. It's another phrase that we can add to the ones that we're, we're starting to, to assemble. If there's all this room, if God has provided, if he's, if he's taken care of his saints throughout time, if he's in charge of it all, he's got the destinies of the armies of the nations on, in his hands, then why would you covet that which is but the drop and neglect the more weighty matters? I, I love that phrase too. It's just a drop. The weightier matters are things like repentance. So repent of your covetous desires. The weightier matters are things like faith. So believe in a God who provides. The weightier matters are righteousness. So, so come to a land that we're trying to make holy through our consecrations. The way to your matters are obedience. So thus saith the Lord, quit tarrying, quit dragging your feet, come and gather with the saints in Missouri. What are you holding on to? What's holding you back? Your possessions? Your store? I hate to break it to you. That's a drop. A drop in the bucket. I remember doing this once with a with a class where I got one of those big, what is it, five gallon? I can't remember. It's one of those big buckets. And I brought it in and I had a penny. And I asked the students to just close their eyes and listen. And I dropped that penny into the bucket. And I don't know if it's the size of it, but it gave it plenty of, of room to reverberate, some echo space. But I still remember just the feeling I had of listening to the sound of a penny being dropped. And just, there was such a hollowness to that sound. And then as we turn to section 117, verse 8, why would you covet a drop? And to think about all of our possessions, and your house, or your car, or your, your whatever it might be, whatever things that you either have that you covet, I don't want to share it, or lose it, or give it, or the things you don't have that you covet. Either way, you're still focused on stuff. And what is stuff unto me, saith the Lord? Just let it go. It's just a drop. And once you sense the hollowness behind those kinds of things, oh, consecration comes so much more easily. Because that is a weightier matter. Best of all, once it's gone, verse 9, Therefore come up hither unto the land of my people, even Zion. That's what's keeping you back. That's what's dragging you down. Come up. 
hither. Let it go. It's interesting to think of what's dragging you down financially, what's dragging you down as far as possessiveness and covetousness. It reminds me of a hot air balloon. And all this stuff you have in there is keeping you from coming up hither, of rising to the Lord. And it's interesting to see when in, in times of danger and, and say something's happening with a hot air balloon and it's beginning to crash back down to earth, what do you start doing? You cut anything that you can. It's, it's, not, it's not the way to your matters, but there's a weight there that's got to be eliminated. And it's interesting to think the things that you thought, I mean, you traveled pretty light in a hot air balloon to begin with, but in those moments where you really have to determine, I might not survive this. And if this is going to drag me down to earth and, and make me plummet to my death, it's got to go. Uh, now, I'm not saying, again, be, be wisdom and order in all things. Don't run faster than you have strength. Uh, when King Benjamin teaches about uh, begging for forgiveness and not being unprofitable servants, in the very next chapter he warns them, but don't go into debt to be generous, okay? Uh, or then other people will just have to start providing for you. Wisdom and order here, okay? Uh, don't be overzealous. But I think our bigger problem is is being underzealous when it comes to sharing things that are just drops, just possessions, just properties. Let them go so you can come up to God. And verse 10, let my servant William Marks be faithful over a few things and he shall be made over many. Does that ring any bells? There's the parable of the talents. Oh, speaking of money, speaking of God giving Oh, but it wasn't a give in terms of an ownership. It was a give in terms of stewardship. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Newell K. Whitney. Yeah, I'm looking at you, William Marks. Be wise stewards and do with my possessions what I would ask of you. If you can be faithful over a few things, you'll be a ruler over many. And that's the case with William Marks. He's it's told, let him preside in the midst of my people in the city of Far West, and let him be blessed with the blessings of my people. And that's exactly what he would be called upon to do. But it's tough to be a stake president if you don't live in the stake. Okay, so William, come gather. There's work for you to do. Then in 11, let my servant Newell K. Whitney be ashamed of the Nicolaitan band and of all their secret abominations, of all his littleness of soul before me, saith the Lord, and come up to the land of Adam and Iamen, and be a bishop unto my people, saith the Lord. Not in name, but in deed, saith the Lord. Now there's a lot in verse 11 that Bishop Whitney is going to have to wrestle with. Be a bishop in name? No, be a bishop in deed. It's one thing for people to go around going, oh, Bishop Whitney, Bishop Whitney, Bishop Whitney. But act like one. Be a judge in Israel. In the part of Israel you need to be judging. Be a one who ministers to the temporal needs of the saints. Where the, the saints happen to be and where their temporal needs are almost dragging them under. We need your help. So please come. What is keeping you? Your littleness of soul. Because again, from up here, your store is invisible. It's a speck. So let it go. What's property unto me? Walk away. Come and gather. Don't be so little 
that you would be so trapped by little things. Focus on the weightier, the bigger matters. And this Nicolaitan band, these secret abominations, secret abominations sounds a lot like secret combinations, and that so much of that is capitalism and commercialism and consumerism. There's, we've seen some of that with the word wisdom. We saw some of that back in section 38, uh, when, where consecration first comes up. But Nicolaitan, that takes us back to Revelation 2, verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, this is, this is John's uh, epistle to the saints in Ephesus. And there's something going on there. There's these Nicolaitans. And the, the saints in, in Ephesus hate their deeds, just like God does which helps us understand, okay, so there's something wrong with the Nicolaitans. We don't want, we ought to hate their deeds, not the people, but their deeds, because the Lord hates those deeds as well. So what are those deeds? Elder McConkie helps explain this. Uh, he says, members of the church who were trying to maintain their church standing while continuing to live after the manner of the world. That's, what, that's the Nicolaitan band. Whatever their particular deeds and doctrines were, the designation has come to be used to identify those who want their names on the records of the church, but do not want to devote themselves to the gospel cause with full purpose of heart. I mean, there's enough of loyalty or, or connection that they want to still be a part of things. They want their name on the records of the church. Does that go back to what the Lord just said to Newell K. Whitney? You're, you're a bishop in name only? Now be a bishop in deed. Be a true saint among fellow Latter-day Saints. Even in the Revelation 2 section where it talks about this, the Ephesian saints are, are cautioned in verse 4, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a couple that, that were in love during their courtship and, and honeymoon stage, but they, they lost the weightier matters. They got caught up in lesser, lighter things. And to see these saints that might have been struggling with that, I mean, they are in Ephesus. This is a really important city there to, to understand what, what's sapping their spiritual strength, what's lessening their loyalties, what's, what's made them lose their love. Is the, the Nicolaitans, no wonder you hate them because they're, because they're so tempting and tantalizing. They're starting to draw away your discipleship. It's not as undiluted as it used to be. And so Newell K. Whitney, same thing. This littleness of soul, you have to overcome. Be ashamed of that. And, and live into the calling, the identity that I've given you. The Lord then shifts to the last of these three uh, targets. In verse 12, to Oliver Granger. Again I say unto you, I remember my servant Oliver Granger. Behold, verily I say unto him, that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation, forever and ever, saith the Lord. Interesting, because this is the one we tend not to remember. Several years ago, Elder Boyd K. Packer gave a talk in General Conference where he talked about Oliver Granger. Just dusted off that name and reminded the saints, oh, he's to be remembered. This is like the woman, Mary, who, who anoints Jesus' head prior to his his burial. And even though Judas complains, Jesus is on off. She'll be remembered for this forever. What she gave up, what she sacrificed for me, 
will be a point of, of commemoration, of memory. Oliver will be remembered for similar things. In verse 13 specifically, he's told, Let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord. What? Contend for their redemption? What's going on here? Well, redemption, not in terms of uh, fall and atonement. That's the Savior's, the Redeemer's area. But redemption financially. The church is deeply in debt uh, because of the Kirtland Temple, because of being driven out of, of Jackson County. And they're not supposed to go back into debt to build the Far West Temple. Remember earlier, take the properties and turn them out for debts? Well, that's going to be Oliver Granger's job more than anybody's. Because William Marks and Newell K. Whitney are told, quit tarrying, get going, you got to come down here. So, Oliver, this is for you. It's going to be a fight. Because uh, if supply and demand is what it is, and if nobody wants something, that's when the price goes down. If somebody knows you have to sell, then, then all the cards are in their hand. Uh, well, the saints have already abandoned Kirtland for the most part. And you're not exactly going to get high prices in selling something that you own in name only for now. For now. I mean, Oliver Granger was given an impossible task. But fight for it. Do the best that you can. Contend for the redemption of my first presidency. And then this beautiful reassurance at the end of verse 13. And when he falls, not if, this, it's an impossible command, I get that. And when he falls, he shall rise again. For his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. What a beautiful phrase to apply to Oliver and to William and to Newell and to Joseph and to Alexander McRae and to his wife Eunice and to every suffering saint who is struggling to survive the Missouri conflicts. Every struggling saint who is hoping to speedily build this temple in, in far west, to gather saints, they fall. And they rise again. They, they fail. And they keep on trying. It's incredible to watch the persistence and the perseverance, the determination, the dogged faith of the Latter-day Saints. Because they are following Jesus. It is His church. And with, with His promises, with faith in His name, His strength, His power, His purposes, and trusting that what matters to Him is not our success, but rather our sacrifice. More than our increase is our intent. I'm trying. I'm doing the best that I can. I hope that's acceptable. And to the Lord, of course it is. In fact, oh, you, you thought it was about increase? <laughs> I told them already, I'll pay their debts. I'll allow it to happen. I just want you to try. I know what you're up against. I know there are easier ways. I just said, I mean, who controls the, the de destinies of the armies of the nations? I can just make more land. I mean, I can, birds and fowls and fish and beasts. The mountains of Adamandayama, the, the plains of Olahashaneha, I can take care of all of this. You can picture Oliver Granger then. Then why are you making me even try? Because of what it's making out of you. I'll take care of the increase. You just work on your sacrifice.
and you'll be amazed at what it makes of you, Oliver. Someone worth remembering, believe me. I hope we remember this phrase. Even more than remembering Oliver Granger, I hope we remember the Oliver Granger within each of us. Not just what he went through, but what the Lord reassured him with, because that applies to us as well. What I say unto you, Oliver Granger, I say unto all. And so this promise of sacrifice, more sacred than success. Keep aiming for success. That's going to keep you going. That's that, you're going to think that that's the, the, your motivation. Oh, that's not, that's not my purpose. But if that gets you going, if that's the carrot that helps you move forward, wonderful. I'm just trying to build the, the strength of your legs. I'm trying to make something out of you. Zion was always a people more than a place. I care about my people more than my programs. Why do you think we have a lay ministry? <laughs> Why do you think I give everybody callings to serve? It's more about your, your inner strength than your outer successes. It's my children, even more than my kingdom, that I'm trying to build. Oh, so worth remembering. Then verse 14, Therefore let him come up hither speedily unto the land of Zion, and in due time he shall be made a merchant unto my name, saith the Lord, for the benefit of my people. Maybe this is just practice there. If you're going to become a merchant unto my name among my people to help them. Well, this is, this is an easier... <laughs> work on it. Practice it there in Kirtland. It's going to be tough, but since I don't, I'm less concerned about your success, less concerned about your increase, more concerned about your sacrifice, so go practice sacrificing there. Work on your merchant skills. They'll be needed. Uh, I'm, I'm giving... This is a good safety net. Okay, forget the Kirtland Safety Society. Here's a safety that I'm giving you uh, to practice something in a place that's going to be where your success is less important. There'll be other places where success might be more important, that you're with these people and you really need to help them for the benefit of my people. But work on the other things now, in the meantime. Then verse 15, Therefore let no man despise my servant Oliver Granger. Let the blessings of my people be on him forever and ever. And don't despise him like, wait, that's all you got out of it? It's, it's got to be frustrating for my wife sometimes when we'll have like a garage sale. And she has the sweetest, kindest heart. And if somebody just, what, what, can, you, what can you pay? That's good enough. And so often I'm just, I, I'm the financial guy in our family. And I see what we're, what we're up against. And so it's like, oh, we could have made more on that. And, and I can just picture my wife going, honey. Please don't despise me. <laughs> Let your blessings be upon me forever and ever. I'm doing the best that I can. And I just, it's just stuff anyway. Okay, you're right. You're right. I, I, I'm just interested in terms of what others, like, that was my farm back in Kirtland. You were put in, you, you were made responsible to sell it, and that's all you made? Well, I'm sorry for my, for my, for my failures. I did rise again. I'm going to keep trying. I hope you'll allow, trust me to be a merchant among us. But please recognize the sacrifices I'm trying to make. May my, may my humanity be, be mitigated by my desire to be a blessing to my fellow humans. That, that I'm doing the best that I can. Then finally, verse 16, Again, verily I say unto you, Let all my servants in the land of Kirtland remember the Lord their God and mine house also, to keep and preserve it wholly, to overthrow the money changers in mine own due time, saith the Lord, even so. Amen. Oh, overthrowing the money changers? 
in a revelation about stuff and what's property and let it go and it's just a drop and make your sacrifices because that's what matters most. Are we sometimes the money changers right outside the house of God more focused on our possessions rather than the weightier matters that are taking place inside? Remember the Lord. Remember my house. Keep it. Preserve it wholly. And not just Kirtland, because you're leaving that. You're gathering out speedily. What about my house in Far West? What about ultimately my house in Independence? We've got capstones yet to lay and a lot of work, a lot of laboring diligently until we get there. No wonder we need to overcome our covetous desires, money changers. No wonder we need to overcome our littleness of souls. Now, if you want to see the opposite, uh, and, and Oliver Granger had that large soul, but so did the members of the Quorum of the Twelve that are addressed in section 118. In 117, Oliver is given a, an impossible task. In 118, the apostles are. And if there's a, I mean, if you can hear the Mission Impossible uh, soundtrack in the background as we study 118, they were called on an impossible mission. If you remember back in 115, a date is given. Uh, it's supposed to be, I mean, the, the revelation came on April 26th, 1838, and they're told in a year from now, you're supposed to recommence the laying of the foundation of the temple. Now, something else is going to happen on that date. Now, here we're still in July. A lot of these revelations have happened uh, in July. But in 118, the saints are told this, Verily thus saith the Lord, let a conference be held immediately. And we're going to, no, no time to wait. We've got to get everybody together. Let the twelve be organized. We've had all kinds of chaos and confusion with people falling away back in Kirtland and so on. Remember last week with section 114, what do we do about people who have apostatized or left? Well, we need to replace them. We fill the vacancies. So here, get the twelve organized. Let men be appointed to supply the place of those who are fallen. So 118 is kind of an outgrowth of 114. We've got to get organized here. We need a quorum of the twelve, not a quorum of the eight, okay? Verse 2, let my servant Thomas, so this is Thomas B. Marsh, still president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, let him remain for a season in the land of Zion to publish my word. So that's what he needs to be doing in the meantime. Uh, as we call this conference immediately, as we start reorganizing things, he's got to be here to, to help run the show. It's your quorum after all. But then, verse 3, let the residue, so the other apostles, continue to preach from that hour. It's all about missions. You are special witnesses of the name of the Lord, of, of the Lord in all the world. So you've got to be out in the world preaching. Okay? Preach from that hour. If they will do this in all lowliness of heart. That was the Lord's counsel to President Marsh. Be thou humble, and I the Lord will lead thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers. Do this in all lowliness of heart, in meekness, in humility, in long-suffering, all those attributes that uh, Thomas B. Marsh's strengths made it hard to develop, his strength for leadership and passion and zeal. It's like, yeah, that, that flip the coin, careful about the other issues. Pull out your contrary coin and work on your humility and your meekness and your long-suffering. Uh, then it'll balance out your zeal and keep it from becoming overzealous. Well, this is a good combination, Thomas. I, the Lord, here's the promise then. If he will do all that, I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that I will provide for their families. 
and an effectual door shall be opened for them from henceforth. That phrase came up in section 112 also. Again, counsel to Thomas B. Marsh in the Quorum of the Twelve. Opening doors of the kingdom so the nations can come in. Praying for an effectual door to be opened in those nations to let the missionaries in. Doors need to be opened in both, in both directions. Okay? If you've ever been in one of those you know, hotel rooms that have it's side-by-side rooms with doors that will open between them if you, if you get both rooms together. But there's a door with a lock on either side. And I'm going to open mine, but will the other open theirs? And so go, pray that the, king, that the kingdoms of the world will open their door so missionaries can go in. And then the missionaries, or the Quorum of the Twelve, will have the power, the keys, to open the door of the kingdom so that the nations can come in. And that door better be effectual. Okay? We don't want to take the hinges off. Uh, make it big enough that all nations can come in. It'll happen. There's the promise of the Lord, if we're meek and, and humble and long-suffering. Now, verse 4, next spring. The Lord's kind of seeing the big picture here. He promised that Joseph would be inspired to know what to do. And there's a lot of dates here. I want this done this summer. I want this done before the snows begin to fall. I want this done on this date next spring. Now here again, next spring, let them depart to go over the great waters and there promulgate my gospel, the fullness thereof, and bear record of my name. Now, there's some ears perking up. Okay, this whoa, the Quorum of the Twelve next spring is going to go over the great waters to promulgate the gospel. This is the British mission. We saw before uh, what led to Thomas B. Marsh's consternation was the fact that Joseph called uh, Heber C. Kimball to begin a mission to Great Britain. And Thomas B. Marsh says, well, that's my prerogative. That's my quorum. Well, I know it is. And, and you still have responsibility for it. I want you to organize the quorum. I want uh, new members to replace the old. But get ready because next spring the quorum of the Twelve Apostles is going to go on a mission to Great Britain. And, and you want to talk about saving the church. It's amazing the influx of new life, new faith, new testimony, new undiluted disciples ready to roll up their sleeves and get to work building Zion. Uh, the, the, the conversions, the converts from the British mission saved the church. And here they're told, next spring start. Now, next spring is is general. And just so sometime during the spring, wherever you happen to be, just pick up and cross the ocean. Go share the gospel. But verse 5 is where everything changes. If you got rid of verse 5, section 118 would be a pretty straightforward, simple, not an impossible mission, a fairly straightforward one. Just next spring, go to, go to England. Share the gospel. But verse 5, let them take leave of my saints in the city of far west, on the 26th day of April next, on the building spot of my house, saith the Lord. Hmm. So we're far past the, the generalities of verse 4 to something extremely specific in verse 5. Where are you going to leave from? Far west. And when are you going to leave? April 26th next year. Same day that you're going to recommence the laying of the, the cornerstones of the temple which is kind of beautiful. There's a, some, some balance here of on the same day that we are thinking of temple work, we're also thinking of missionary work. Either way, we're gathering Israel, right? Both sides of the veil, that's been President Nelson's focus so much. Same date, same day, same time, same lifetime, just 
we have dual missions, every one of us. So can we, can we do them both simultaneously? I hope so. Now, verse 6, he then specifies who is going to fill those vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve. Uh, let my servant John Taylor, future president of the church, also my servant John E. Page, also my servant Wilfred Woodruff, another future president of the church, also my servant Willard Richards, I mean, John Taylor and Willard Richards would both be with Joseph and Hiram in Carthage jail during the, at the time of the martyrdom. I mean, these, these leaders are powerful. And, and replacing those who, who abandoned their power, who, who gave up on, on the kingdom of God, these, these faithful saints would not. Let them be appointed to fill the places of those who have fallen and be officially notified of their appointment. Now, like I said, this could be pretty straightforward. You're going to go on a mission. That's the big news. Uh, they're given their date, their report date. Missionaries get that too, right? You are called to labor in the such and such mission and it's expected that you'll report to the missionary training center on such and such a date. Great. Now I know where I'm supposed to be and when I'm supposed to be there. Fantastic. Because that's really hard if you don't know those things. Okay. And we know the who also. So we know the when, we know the where, we know the who. These four apostles will be added to the Quorum of the Twelve. Great. Thanks for giving us so much time to prepare. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done uh, between now and then the summer and before the snows come. And I'm so grateful that we have all this time to get ready for this British mission of the Quorum of the Twelve. Well, it didn't quite end up that way. Because between the giving of this revelation in July... And the, the time it was meant to be fulfilled, the following April, everything changed in Missouri. You've had the Hans Mill massacre. You've had them driven out of Far West. You've had uh, the, the knockdown, drag out fight in Gallatin over voting rights. You've had uh, Missourians uh, attack Latter-day Saints. David W. Patton of the Quorum of the Twelve is killed at the Battle of Crooked River. You've had Latter-day Saints, unfortunately, fight back a little too zealously. You have these Danite bands starting to, uh, to crop up. Uh, remember Section 98 and the Lord's Law, this just war theory. Once you've turned three cheeks, you're justified if you choose to defend yourself. You don't have to. I will continue multiplying blessings if you keep turning the other cheek. But there have been so many cheeks turned and slapped and bloodied by now that you can see why there would be conflict within the church of trying to decide which, which side are we going to go on. The choice is ours now. We forgive, forgive, forgive. But now we have a choice to make. And like in any choice, there will be a spectrum of perspectives. And some will say, oh, the blessings will far outweigh whatever justice we mete out or whatever vengeance we try to take to ourselves. I, I'll prefer the blessings. And I'll, I'll allow for another slapped cheek. But others, no, we're justified. And I refuse to stand idly by and watch our people suffer again. We've been driven from county to county to county. Well, no more. And, and there's talk of turning cheeks. There's talks of, of salt that's lost its savor and it's good for nothing but to be trodden down and trampled under the foot of men. There, there's a mini extermination order. Uh, on Sidney Rigdon's suggestion of, well, forget it. If they're not going to be faithful, it's, there's some vigilante justice going on because this is the Western frontier and not quite civilized yet. And so in many parts of the United States, it's run more by, 
It's not a police force that we're after. It's not call out the National Guard. It's local militias that are, cons that are comprised of just local members of society. And, and the Saints are doing that. The Missourians are doing that. And, and literal violence is beginning to erupt to the point that Lilburn Boggs, and there's been a lot of betrayal. Some, I would suggest, is, is evil-spirited but from very little souls. And others, perhaps, we give people too, oh, we don't cut them enough, enough slack for some of their betrayals of Joseph Smith and others. I mean, again, Liberty Jail is just next week. Uh, as people turn Joseph over to the mobs, to the militias, in hopes of, of keeping the peace, oh, these are, these are gut-wrenching decisions on, on the part of every saint. And among, among Missourians as well, because there were some Missourians that were trying to keep the peace and others that just wanted to expel the Latter-day Saints at, at all costs. There's, there was good and evil. There was humanity mingled with divinity on both sides of the aisle. Well, by the time April 26 rolls around of the following year, Joseph Smith is still in Liberty Jail. The saints are no longer in Missouri because Lilburn Boggs signed his extermination order saying the saints have to be driven from the state. It's, if there's enough, there's been reports circulated and an affidavit sent to him by members of the church that had turned on Joseph Smith saying, oh no, yes, the saints are definitely a threat. And taking that seriously, Boggs signs the order and get the saints out. Driven from the state, exterminated if necessary, but it's fair game. And so the saints all flee the, from, from, the, from the members of the Quorum of the Twelve all the way down to the, the, the newest convert to the church, from a Brigham Young on one end to, a, <laughs> to an incredibly feisty Eunice McRae with her pistol in one hand and a baby in the other. I, <laughs> it's amazing what the saints go through. But what does that have to do with Section 118? Well, when the revelation came, the thought of leaving Far West next spring to go on a mission sounded pretty easy. We're right here. Maybe that's all the Lord meant. Go on your mission. Of course you're going to leave from here because that's where you live. Well, I don't know. The Lord does know the end from the beginning. Did he know that we would be out of the state? Is he still serious about, nope, you got to leave from Far West. What's the important thing? Is it the destination? Just go across the great waters? Or is it the origin? Well, God cares about both, where we're going, but also where we came from. And some things need to start in specific places. We've got to begin here if we ever hope to get there. Well, there was all kinds of confusion and, and I don't know, contention, maybe, uh, on the parts of the members of the church, especially the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. What do we do? The closer we get to April 26th of 1839, the more this revelation starts to loom large. And it becomes more and more of an, a mission impossible. Some, even Joseph Smith Sr. said, There's, God will understand. You can go on the right day. You can, let, let's honor the when, just not the where. Not on the origin side. There is a price on the head of every Latter-day Saint if we cross the river. And so do not think about going back to far west to start your mission. Start it from right here the banks of the Mississippi, on the safer eastern Illinois side. Just go from here. God will honor the will for the deed. You wanted to. 
you were trying to do the very best you could. Just go from here. And again, Joseph Smith Sr. is recommending that. Well, Brigham Young, strong, passionate, uh, a bit stubborn. He's a New England Yankee, too. And other members of the Quorum of the Twelve say, no, if that revelation came from God, then we're going to honor that it came from God. If Joseph's a true prophet, we're going to honor that, and, and we're going to make sure that it's fulfilled. How much of inspiration and revelation is, is purely on God, and we just sit back and let it happen? Or how much of it is on us, that we need to make it happen? I mean, yes, Moses was on the mountaintop raising his hands, but Joshua was down in the valley fighting. He didn't just look up there and go, oh, hands are up, we're good. No, it's like, hands are up, Moses is doing his part. We've got to be arms, uh, weapons in hand and do our part as well. So the Quorum of the Twelve decides to go on this mission impossible. And it is one of the classic stories of church history. Because guess who else loves Section 118? The Missouri mobbers, thanks to the help of the apostate Latter-day Saints. They're aware of this date and this location. If it was just general, spring, go on your mission, well, we can't fight that one. We can't stop it from happening. But you tell me a date... And you tell me a place, a place so specific, you're going to take leave from the building spot of my house? Piece of cake. And there were four ex-members of the church and the, the Missouri mobbers that had now befriended them. Oh, you're on our side now? Great. We'll let bygones be bygones. We don't care what you used to believe. You're now one of us. And they thought, all we have to do is guard the temple site on April 26, 1839. And we can prove old Joe Smith to be a false prophet. They loved this revelation. Listen to this from the history of the church. This day, a company of about 50 men in Davies County swore that they would never eat or drink until they'd murdered Joe Smith. Their captain, William Bowman, swore in the presence of Theodore Turley, who's a member of the church, that he would never eat or drink after he had seen Joe Smith until he had murdered him. Also eight men, Captain Bogart, who was the county judge, Dr. Lafferty, John Whitmer, one of ours, Five others came into the committee's room, that's, that's the committee on removal, how do we get the Mormons out, and presented to Theodore Turley the paper containing the revelation of July 8th, 1838, to Joseph Smith, directing the twelve to take their leave of the saints in far west on the building side of the Lord's house on the 26th of April to go to the Isles of the Sea, and then asked him to read it. So here's some apostates and some Missouri uh, leaders, and they slap it down. They take the revelation and slap it down right in front of, of Theodore Turley and, and basically say, what do you make of that? This, surely you're going to deny Joseph's prophetic gifts now because this one's impossible to be fulfilled. Well, Turley said this in response. Gentlemen, I am well acquainted with it. They said, well, then you as a rational man will give up Joseph Smith being a prophet and an inspired man. I mean, he and the Twelve are now scattered all over creation. Let them come here if they dare. If they do, they'll be murdered. As that revelation cannot be fulfilled, you will now give up your faith. Well, not one to take orders. <laughs> Theodore Turley jumps up and he says, In the name of God, that revelation will be fulfilled. And they laughed him to scorn. John Whitmer, who knew these men so personally, hung down his head. They said, if they, the twelve, if they come, they'll get murdered. They dare not come to take their leave here. That is like all the rest of Joe Smith's bleepity bleep prophecies. Well, they misjudged Joseph's prophetic gifts, but they also misjudged Brigham Young's stubborn <laughs> just persistence. 
and the courage and the faith of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. They decided to go for it. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, here's this mission impossible. Are we going to do it? I wish they'd make a movie of this because it became like this commando mission almost as they are, are sneaking across the river and through, they got across the whole state, right? Far west is far west. But as they're going and just doing the best they can to lie low and not be caught, this is such a danger. It's hard enough to go on a mission. Imagine if you had to go behind enemy lines and travel through enemy territory with a price upon your heads just to get to the MTC, okay? Yeah, my, the beginning of my mission was nowhere near this hard. I had to drive through Las Vegas on the way. I mean, does that count? I don't think so. Well, they get to, to far west, uh, undetected. And in the wee hours of the morning, I mean, <laughs> I guess sin really does make you stupid. Because if I was the, the Missouri mob, I would start from like, I'd probably get there early. You know, 11.45 at the latest, maybe, you know, so I can set up camp. Uh, and surround the place with, with an army. Now, everyone looking outward that there's no... I mean, you want to talk about guard the, the temple site. Well, here's the mobbers going to do it. And I would do it at least from 1145 on the 25th until just after midnight on the 27th. That way we've guarded the ground and we've policed the date and nothing's happening here. But probably overconfident in themselves and underestimating the power of the Quorum of the Twelve. The Quorum of the Twelve, they, they leave it, right? They're going to they're gonna probably go in the morning. We'll, we'll be in there. Well, nobody gets up this early. Well, the Quorum of the Twelve did. And in the wee hours of the morning, they sneak over to the temple site. Sweet. It's still here. They take a stone and roll it over to the spot where a cornerstone would be. So it's like, okay, section uh, 115, check the box, okay? We are recommencing the laying of the foundation right here. Uh, we're at the, the, the construction and the capstone is going to have to wait. Believe me, we'll be laboring diligently until it's done. It just won't be here in Far West. Uh, we'll be working our tail off, but it will eventually we'll come back. But they, they dedicate the temple. They, they are the temple foundations, the cornerstones. They, they sing a hymn, probably really, really quietly. They pray. They set apart these four uh, new apostles. They have just enough of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve with them to form a quorum of the Quorum. And they ordain these four new apostles. I mean, Wilford Woodruff sits on the, the stone that they rolled that, to make the cornerstone. It's amazing how it's all coming together under cover of darkness. And they, sit, they ordain these new apostles, and then basically, okay, we good? Did, did we, did, okay, check the box on 115, temple, good. Check the box on, box on 118, good. And then it's like, hmm, book it, book it out of Far West and book it out of Missouri. Get back to Illinois as quickly as we can, and then from there, on to Great Britain, and on to glory. Uh, except Theodore Turley, who'd been kind of, again, threatened, manhandled, he didn't take that lightly. And on the way out, he couldn't help but pass by the home of an old friend who was a current apostate. Isaac Russell was his name. And he knocks on the door in those early morning hours, and Isaac Russell's all, what, 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 what are you doing here? What, Turley, what are you doing? And Brother Turley just smiles. It's like, you, you know what today is, don't you? And Isaac Russell kind of like, wait, wait, what? Well, yeah, of course, of course I know the day. It's 26. This is the day we've all been waiting for. It's like, well, yeah, you missed it, because guess what we just did? And, and I, I get it. I love, I love the, the, 
Again, if, if, if whatever was inside of, of Eunice McRae, yeah, that was also in the inside of, of, of Theodore Turley. And just kind of had to rub it in a little bit. One last parting shot with his old friend, like, yeah, we checked the box, baby. Uh, we did exactly what Joseph had prophesied. Sorry you missed it. And then it's mm, him off running to get back to safe territory. It's just an amazing moment in the history of the church. And it shows to me not just the, 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 I don't know, the wisdom or inspiration of God, but also the courage and the fortitude, the feistiness of men and women. It's a beautiful, beautiful combination. Okay? Now, section 119 and 120 form a packaged pair as well. And as we wrap up the, the revelations for this week, kind of ties it all back together. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We need to build His kingdom, beginning at His house. We are far west and we've got yet more west, further west to go from here as the light shines to dispel every shadow of darkness. How are we going to build this temple if, if we can't go into debt for it? What are we going to do if it's just stuff and property and Poor Oliver Granger is going to do his best make, making some money from the properties in Kirtland to redeem the first presidency, but it's going to be a failure, and God knows already. It's all right. Sacrifice better than increase. In fact, speaking of sacrifice, here's the sacrifice that all the saints need to make. It still falls under the large umbrella of consecration, but we are going to specify a law of tithing within it. The word tithing has been mentioned earlier, right? We talked about what section 64 and the tithing of my people is meant to overcome Babylon. It's meant to overcome our selfishness. It's meant to, to wean our heart off of possessions. It's what keeps us from being burned at his coming. Not that tithing is fire insurance. We talked about that. But rather the attributes that tithing develops and, and evinces, it proves, that's what shows us worthy of of being here for the second coming. It's what makes a Zion people out of us. Okay? It's not fire insurance. It's the refiner's fire itself that refines us so that the coming fire doesn't have any kind of effect. Well, tithing is explained in section 119, and then how to use the tithing is explained in section 120, or at least the organization to make those decisions is. So in, in 119, Verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord, I require all their surplus property to be put into the hands of the bishop of my church in Zion. You see, for months now, the saints in, in Missouri have been trying to figure out how do we pay debts, how do we, uh, can we buy new land in a new county and, and build things here, how are we going to build the temple in Far West? And there's this question. Seven months before this, the high council had come together and thought, well, we should I mean, how do we gather funds? Let's, let's create some kind of a tithe for the people and let's set it at 2%. Okay? The saints have nothing, but 2% is, is nothing of nothing. Uh, it's not much to ask of them, and hopefully it'll at least get us moving forward in the direction we need to go economically. There's that question. Well, here the revelation finally comes that says, no, tithing by its very <laughs> nature is a tenth. And, and that's where it's going to come down. And how it's going to start in verse 1 is with a, a consecration of surplus. Now this is interesting because it's, we're going to start from a certain level of, of minimal need. Okay, We want to start at ground zero. Uh, to get there, we're going to eliminate 
surplus because what is property unto me? Okay, let it go. It's just a drop. I'll, I'll, I'll bless you beyond, okay, Malachi measure. And so actually Brigham Young was one of those who was put in, in charge of gathering this surplus. And that begs the question, which he then asked of Joseph, well, what's surplus? I mean, to differentiate between needs and wants is always hard. And if I'm responsible to gather surplus, how do I decide? In fact, that's the question to Joseph. Who determines what constitutes surplus? And Joseph, Mr. Teach Correct Principles and Let Them Govern Themselves himself, said to Brigham, let the people be the judges of that themselves. That sounds a lot like tithing settlement, right? The bishop isn't checking your W-2. He simply asks you to judge yourself. Are you a full tithe payer? And if you say yes, he doesn't, there's no questions asked, right? Well, let you be the judge. And that, I think, says to us something about our finances. And even the 10% of, well, is that net? Is that gross? Do I, before taxes, after taxes, before insurance, after insurance? What am I... I mean, you can whittle it down quite a bit until it's like, well, no, this is what I have left over at the end of the month. And so I'll give God 10% of that. Mm, careful. But see what, in fact, check this out. If this is surplus, we're going to start at actual need. And from actual need, we're going to cut into that with a 10% tithe. Oh, that's interesting. So even in our day where it's like, well, I'll just, I've got all this and I'll give 10% of that. I still have more than I need for many people. It's interesting though that if the Lord cares about our sacrifice more than our increase, if that's what's sacred and what's making us holier along the way, that to me there's just something about let's get you down to what you thought you needed to live and then live on a little less. That's, that's interesting because that requires faith. If I have all this surplus and just cut into my surplus, then I still have enough and probably and to spare a little, a little less to spare than before, but I still got more than I need. There's something about the Lord taking us, and I'm not trying to do math on this one. Now I'm just working on attitude. To take us to a point where we feel like, yes, this is what would be normal for me. Wants, needs, take the whole bit, whatever. But then cut into it. C.S. Lewis talked about this, of being so generous with others that it curtails what we would end up normally spending on ourselves. That there's certain things we can't afford to do because we've been too generous. Now again, back to King Benjamin, don't, don't run faster than you have strength. He says that in the context of giving to the poor. Interesting context there. So I'm not saying, again, be, be wise, my friends. Be, be, have order. But also recognize that we ought to be so generous that it hurts a little. That there are certain things we choose not to do because we've chosen to share with those that don't have much choice in their economics at all. I mean, that's the beauty of fasting, right? By being going hungry, I feel what they feel. And that ought to motivate the generosity of my fast offerings. Well, similarly here with tithing, think about surplus and what can I offer? Okay. But again, you're, you'll be the judges of that. We all will be. <laughs> but read section 19, 119 in the context of 117. Ah, what's property? Let it go. Weightier matters. Verse 2, here's a weighty matter. 
for the building of mine house. Again, we're not going to go into debt for it. We're going to tithe for it. For the laying of the foundation of Zion. And not just the economics in terms of, oh, we're, it's going to cost us money to lay the foundation of Zion. Well, that's part of it. But also, spiritually speaking, the foundation of Zion is the law of sacrifice. Because sacrifice sanctifies. That there, there is no, remember Joseph's famous statement, that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has the power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. And so at the foundation of Zion is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in him who can offer birds and beasts and fields and, and fowls and, and will provide for our needs. And how do I prove that faith? I throw myself on his providence that he will provide for me since I, didn't, I don't have enough to completely provide for myself. I'm going to whittle away just enough flesh off my arm to know that I have to trust in the arm of God. That faith is at the foundation of Zion. That sacrifice is at the foundation of Zion. It's for the priesthood to be able to move the work forward. It's for the debts of the presidency of my church. And, and like we saw in 117, he puts that on the level of redeeming them economically. Now verse 3, this shall be the beginning of the tithing of my people. So that's just the start. And we've been trying to consecrate this whole time. And now we're going to try a specific version of consecration known now as the law of tithing, still under that same umbrella. This is just going to be the beginning of it, not the end. There's still more that you can be called upon to consecrate if you will covenant to do that, which was God's goal from the start. There's the true foundation of Zion, sacrifice and consecration, okay, holy places. So, but this is the beginning. There may be other times later on where you're asked to give more with your fast offerings or more with your humanitarian aid contributions or more with your general missionary funds or more with your temple construction funds just, or more just serving in your calling and, and making a, a difference in the ward or stake that you're a part of. This is the beginning of the tithing of my people. The surplus, now that we're at your minimum requirements, what do we do next? Verse 4, after that, those who have thus been tithed shall pay one-tenth of all their interest annually. And this shall be a standing law unto them forever, for my holy priesthood, saith the Lord. So this is where the one-tenth comes in. I'll just move the decimal point. The math is really easy. But it really is interesting to see that that's the second step in, in tithing. The first was having that consecrated, sacrificial perspective on what do you really need versus how can you contribute to those who are needier? Then verse 5, Verily I say unto you, it shall come to pass that all those who gather unto the land of Zion shall be tithed of their surplus properties and shall observe this law, or they shall not be found worthy to abide among you. If Zion, and that's where we're trying to abide, is one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, and no poor among us, then our failure to do this on behalf of others is a failure on our part to truly become Zion in hopes of eventually building it. Now again, so much of this will be personal. What constitutes your interest annually? It's going to be between you and the Lord. And honestly, that's what, that's what the Lord's been after all along. I want a relationship. Tithing, fast offerings, uh, consecration, all of that needs to be relational 
more than transactional. And if we can focus on that, that my contributions, are they developing a relationship with the Lord? Where it's stewardship, stewardship requires relationship in ways that ownership doesn't. And so if I'm a wise steward, parable of the talents, William Marks, if I'm sacrificing, which makes is more sacred than increase, Oliver Granger, if I've overcome the littleness of my soul and, and repented of my covetous desires, Neil K. Whitney, oh, no Nicolaitan band in me. I'm all in on this. That's, I'm not just contributing in name only. I want to be a bishop, or in this case, a disciple, a saint in very deed. And this is one way I can do that. That will help me be found worthy to abide among the fellow saints of the latter days. Then in verse 6, I say unto you, if my people observe not this law, to keep it holy, and by this law sanctify the land of Zion unto me, that my statutes and my judgments may be kept thereon, that it may be most holy. Behold, verily I say unto you, it shall not be a land of Zion unto you. And this shall be an ensample unto all of the stakes of Zion. Even so, amen. So it's not just for the saints in the far west. This is for the saints everywhere, in every stake. And I love how he puts it back in verse 6, that this law, if you keep it holy, will end up keeping you holy as well. And that's the way it always works. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So it's not about you keeping the Sabbath day holy. It's about allowing the Sabbath to keep you holy. It's about sanctifying the land of Zion because you are sanctified saints that have come together, gathered to build it. It's amazing what the Lord is trying to work on and it's on us. I'm building you by asking you to build Zion. I'm making you holy by asking you to keep this law holy also. Now as the tithing funds come in, the surplus, the one-tenth, what do we do with it? In the past, we've already seen that, well, I'll inspire Joseph Smith to know how to direct different things. We saw a council system. We saw a treasury with a treasurer. We saw a bishop with counselors. And this idea of counseling together to decide what to do with funds. That's section 104 also. That if you come to the storehouse and need a, a five or a 10 or a 20 or a 50 or a 100, let's counsel together on your needs and counsel together on what we can contribute to you to help you in your stewardship. Well, section 120 describes this council uh, as it was in 1838 and as it still is in 2021. It's now called the Council of the Disposition of the Tithes. How do we dispose of the Lord's money? Uh, and this council that comes together to make those kinds of decisions consists of the following individuals. Section 120. It's only one verse. Verily thus saith the Lord, the time is now come that it shall be disposed of by a council composed of the first presidency of my church, of the bishop and his council. In our day, that would be the presiding bishopric. And by my high council. For us, that is the quorum of the 12 apostles. And then, this is the part that people seem to forget. I've asked people, who's a part of the Council of the Disposition of the Tithes? And they always say, oh, First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, Presiding Bishopric. 
Awesome. We got the Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood personified in its highest manifestations, and they, temporal and spiritual, combining together, we're proving the contrary here, uh, Aaronic and Melchizedek, joining to decide what to do with, with the widow's might, and all the consecrated properties, all the sacrificed funds. Well, that's right. Technically, that's what it is. But how does this revelation end? And by mine own voice unto them, saith the Lord. Even so, amen. So if anyone ever asks you who's part of the council, the disposition of the tithes, make sure you include the fourth. And in fact, make that first. Who decides what to do with tithing money? The Lord does. Because it's his church. The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the, the other saints that join with him in making that decision, under his counsel, by his own voice, the three presiding high priests that bear the keys of the kingdom, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, witnesses of his name, special witness to, to all the world, presiding bishopric, called to meet the temporal needs of the saints around the world. The Lord is over all of this and is concerned with every single drop, every bird, every beast, every fowl, every field. I'll provide, I'll guide you to know what to do. First presidency, as you perfect the saints. Quorum of the Twelve, as you proclaim the gospel. Presiding bishopric, as you, as you care for the poor and the needy, as you meet the temporal needs of the church, including as you figure out how to build temples. That was uh, Bishop Burton's comment after President Hinckley announced, we're going to have 100 temples by the year 2000. And the presiding bishop, Bishop Burton, was like, what? Somebody's got to pay for that. And I have to figure out how. Yes, glad you're on the Council of Disposition of the Tithes, Bishop. Uh, but the, the missions of the church, all of which require our consecrated best, our sacrifice. There's the foundation of Zion again. The Lord is directing what is done with those funds. I'm, I'm grateful for the things that we've been able to talk about and learn in, in these revelations. To me, there's something about all of them that ties back into that beautiful phrase given to Oliver Granger, that your sacrifice will be sacred more sacred than any increase you get on your own. Sacred sacrifices. That describes what the saints are going through in Far West as they're trying to live into the title that the Lord himself gave them as members of his church and as true saints in these latter days. Now that's going to require sacrifice, but it will sanctify you. Of what we saw in section 116 about Adam on Diamond, be willing to come into this fallen world and make your sacrifices of Eden to live in a place where you can actually grow because that sacrifice will make you more sacred. In 117, in all of the William Marks and Newell K. Whitney and, and Oliver Granger, those, their sacrifices will make them more sacred. In 118, Oh, the mission, their sacrifice, not only to go back and start their mission from far west, but their sacrifices going forward to go on to Great Britain. That's the story of, of uh, Brigham Young and, and Heber C. Kimball 
just leaving behind the hurrah for Israel, that's this moment. That's, that's this mission. And leaving behind a family with, that's destitute, that's nothing, and they're sick. And they're just trying to, it's like, this is, this is a tough way to start a mission. But your sacrifice will be more sacred than anything that comes out of this mission, even though that's a lot. Or Pradi P. Pratt, as he starts his mission and like crosses the river and then collapses because he just has no strength. He's sick as a dog. And, and he says himself, Joseph, Joseph Smith sees him and they're like, wow, how you doing, Elder Pratt? And it's like, uh, I feel like I would be better on a di- this dissection table than on, on a mission. And Joseph kind of smiles and laughs and it's like, well, good luck on your mission. <laughs> and gives him a blessing and sends him on his way. Oh, sacrifice start to finish. And it's more sacred. What's Jacob say? Before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain riches if you seek them. For you will seek them with the intent to do good. That, that's what you'll do. You, I, you've, you've become almost immune to the pride cycle. No littleness of soul anymore. No, no covetous desires. Because you've already put God first. And, and he, you'll be able to see then from his perspective what's just a drop and what's just property and what can you just walk away from and say, let it go. Don't forget what the, the way Malachi phrases it when it comes to tithing or consecration or sacrifice that is sacred. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord. Did you catch that? Who's being tested? We usually think of tithing or consecration or sacrifice as tests of our faith. And admittedly they are. But that's not how Malachi phrased it. It's actually, give credit where credit is due. It's not how the Lord phrased it. Because as Malachi quotes the Lord, prove me now herewith, saith the Lord. If I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing beyond what you have room to receive, Prove me? Yes, it's a test of our faith, but it's a test of God's providence, a test of God's promises. I promised that I would meet your needs. I promised I would care for you, and I will. And so to me, one of the great sacred aspects of our sacrifices is it gives God a chance to prove himself, to introduce himself. It's relational for him too, not transactional. Brothers and sisters, I testify that God can be trusted, that he has passed every test. So prove him? Yes. Prove him. Exercise your faith. Make sacred sacrifices. And in the process, you will come to know him who always passes his tests.